Welcome to Codex Rex, the video game history podcast. I am your host, Tyler. And I am your co-host, Dax. Dax! This is a podcast about video game history. <laughs> we, we never talk about who, like, we, oh man, we should have, like, I, I'm, okay, this, I'm, I'm going to do the thing where we talk about the video game history podcast, okay, right? This uh-huh. is a podcast that is called Video Game History Podcast, right, guys? Uh-huh. And we talk about video game history. I mean, there's a lot uh-huh. of stuff to explain here, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, in the end, it's a podcast about video game history where one person talks about video game history and the other does too, surprisingly. That's uh-huh. the, whole, the whole gist. So we're going to skip that part and now we're going to go to the part where I ask you how you are. Oh, wow. Okay. This was a good intro. We did it. We are good at this. We are good uh, at intros. I'm doing okay, man. Um, I have been on a Kenshi kick lately, and it has just gripped me so utterly. Have you ever played that game, Kenshi? Uh, I have never played Kenshi, no. Okay, it'll ruin your life. Um, Kenshi is like, the reason it is so compelling uh, is that you start the game off as like a single character and you kind of like make your character. It's not nearly as in-depth as you might think. And then it's just kind of like you're in a setting. There's no like goal you kind of make your own goals like you want to play the entire game as one character for 200 hours just going around punching people you can do that you want to recruit a massive army and build a base and start taking on other factions you can do that like like make mega open worldy right but super real-time simulation thing but also every character that you have has something like that i have something vague in my head yeah Yep, that's basically what it is. Like, what if each character was its own, like, RPG character? Um, okay, cool. I love it. It's really jank, and you kind of need mods to make it stable. Um, I also downloaded a mod that let me recruit more people. But um, I go through phases, like, on my stream where it's, like, all I'll play for, like, two months, and then I'll drop it for, like, a year. And then someone will start asking when I'm going to play Kenshi again, and I'll go, oh, yeah, I could play, play a little bit of Kenshi. And then it is just, like, all the tendrils have gripped into my brain, and I just can't stop thinking about it it's like all i talk to my wife about and i'm pretty sure she's gonna like kill me if i tell her like oh my god i finally unlocked hydroponics and she's just like uh-huh uh-huh yeah wow <laughs> that's well, great what are we <laughs> it's better than you playing darkest dungeons i bet oh my <sighs> you want to talk about a game that broke me <laughs> but anyway yeah that's what i've been that's been my big my big thing and i've been playing a bunch of little random stuff off stream but what about you, man? What have you been up to? Um, what have you been I playing? have found a really nice game. Jack, you you like um, the Return of the Oprah Dean, right? Yes. Yeah, that was yeah. Go it's ahead. like a it's like a deduction game, um, and I have played another game that is like that. It scratches the same itch because um, the Return of the Oprah Dean you can't really play twice. With, it really, won't yeah. have the same effect because like the it's like a mystery game, and in the end you know the mystery, so it doesn't really. It's not as surprising anymore, but um, mm-hmm. I found another game that is like that. It's called Chance of Senar, and that oh. is really cool. It's basically a game where you are a character in the the, the um, Tower of Babel, and you have okay. to kind of learn the language of different people by basically going with like like clues like they a person says something to you and out of context you have to like decipher the glyphs that their sentence was made of and this is it's super cool and in the end you mm. feel so smart when playing it. what was it called again and i really like that um chance of senna mm. that sounds pretty cool man i'm gonna have to check that out sometimes um it's a really cool game sometimes i like really like puzzle games and then other times i like hate puzzle games i i 
it's hard for me to stream them sometimes because it's really lighthearted okay. and not it, like many puzzle games like are hard to stream because it's, you have to get too much into it mm -hmm. and not a lot of stuff is happening but it's really quick and you can easily debate your thoughts about it so i think it's also a very well streamable game okay good to know if you want to do that Awesome. Well, dude, I'll check that out. That sounds really neat, especially because you you suggested Oberdin to me, and um, I really really liked that game. That was it was just incredible. That game is so insane. Yeah, yeah. so good. Okay. Um, anything else we should talk about before we? No, we should maybe tell people how they should contact us if they wanted to do that. Yeah, the easiest way to do that is just to um, send us an email at codexrexpodcast at gmail .com. Um, You are also oh, I'm also on Twitch. Uh, my uh, which handle is vegan Tyler. And if you come into our Discord, you are welcome to come and hang out with us. Um, yep, yep, yep. Yep, yep, yep. Just <laughs> as the Germans say. Hmm. Yeah, uh, shall we get into the yes, episode? Yes, perhaps we shall, Docs. <laughs> you little shit. <laughs> We're not even going to tell them the context on this. All right. Episode begin. Away. Takahashi was born in 1975 in Kita Kyushu, Japan, which is the northernmost city of the southern island of Japan. So the top of the southern island. Okay. His father was a deep sea salvage expert, Whoa. which is really cool, right? His mother was a homemaker, but I also heard her described as a math lover. Um, <laughs> a math lover? Mm. A math lover. A lover of math. Okay. As a child... He was always interested in making things, though he has mentioned in interviews that for a time he wanted to become an airline pilot, but art was always a common thread throughout his life. Quote, I started to go to art class when I was around four or five years old in Japan. It was so fun. So I got into making and drawing. I became interested in architecture in middle school. And for a time, uh, he dreamed of making, quote, small houses for common families because houses are one of the necessities of modern life, end quote. Yeah, it is. Okay, nice. So and, oh man, I love the parallel to Lewis Castle already because he also was into architecture and he was mm -hmm. also into art from a very young age. Yep. Yep. There seems to be some threads there, right? The makings of game designers. Yeah. But like many people, Keita Takahashi realized that his dreams would require... Math. His mother was a math lover. He was not. And he started to back out of architecture. So he decides to study just art in high school instead. He, he starts to focus more on art. And he enrolled in what is called a juku in Japan, which is basically like a cram school where you study one subject very intensely every evening. And he decides to do this with art. What's a, what's a cram school? What's um, like the idea that like... Um, Okay, how do I explain this? Uh, surely in Germany there are some like large like tests or something you might need to take or like a standardized test somewhere. Like for me, like when I went to get into grad school, I had to take something called the GRE. Um, uh, yeah, I think like what we would call the Abitur that you get after high school. Okay, sure. Or for I guess that is that is in Germany that is standardized, so it would allow you to go to any university or grad school 
program in the country. Right. Ours would be like the SATs, I think, um, or maybe ACTs these days as well. But you might go to a cram school to prepare for that test. This is more like, let's say you want to go to college for like a specific subject. You might go to... Uh, like a school that prepares you in all the fundamentals of that that's outside of your normal education that is just that one thing Intensely does that make sense? Oh, okay, cool. I understand. Yeah, that makes sense. Great. Okay. Now um, I think that is the full extent of what I know about Ajuku if that is uh, Cool, that's enough. Yeah, that explains it. Okay during this time he becomes interested in making sculptures he didn't find many of the other forms of art to be particularly interesting, but he remembers how much fun he had making things with clay when he was a kid. So he switches his focus then to be more specifically about sculpting. And I'll summarize him here. Um, basically, it was the tangible nature of creating something, right? Like, it seems like when you look at sculpture, it seems very simple to outsiders, but it requires so much skill to get right. Simple, uh, simple but deep, as he put it. So that was what sculpture was. The doing. toughest part is also to get Patrick Swayze's ghost to come up behind you and grab you from from the back. That's true. To help you sculpt. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah. I've never been attractive enough to get Patrick Swayze to to do that for me. But you know, I guess we'll see how the next couple of years goes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so after high school, in 1995. Keita enrolls in the Musashino Art University to study sculpting at the university level. Now, um, Musashino Art University, or Musabi, is a private university in Kodaira, western Tokyo. It is founded in 1962, and it has roots going the whole way back to um, 1929. Um, it is known as one of the leading art universities in Japan, and there have been many famous artists who studied there, including the artist who made Hello Kitty. Cool. So this is like kind of a big deal. He gets into a big, big deal art school. He starts learning sculpting, but then he starts having the thoughts that many artists have. How is he going to make any money as an artist? How's he going to like, you know, live and eat food and things like that? And plus, learning in cram school was one thing, right? Like they give him assignments, he would do them, he would move on. But now they're like, cool, it's on you. Make things, right? Things of your own design. And so that's a little scary. And yeah, I think I think the the dread that comes with that must be um, must be really horrifying because you you like if you have nothing to fall back on, it it kind of feels like your skill as an artist entirely decides if your life is going to be um, enjoyable to live. Mm -hmm. It's true. Um, I think that just as a personal anecdote, I don't think this is exactly the same thing, but one of the scariest parts about grad school for me when I first started was, okay, uh, you're, we're going to teach you a little bit about how to do research and stuff like that. But now it's on you figure out what you want to research and then find things that no one's ever done before. And that's really daunting when you're first starting out. It's very overwhelming. So now imagine that, like you said, his entire life is going to be based around his skill as an artist and I can see the dread there. Yep. Yep. Okay. So also he starts to see things he doesn't like about art and the art industry. Like for one, he thought that art, it's often so highbrow that the, a regular person couldn't appreciate it or interact with it. And so that was one thing he didn't like. And then also he felt like the art he was creating didn't have purpose. 
So here's a quote about that. Quote, making sculpture or art is very useless compared to other jobs like doctors, teachers, or farmers. If there was a ranking board of job importance, sculptor would definitely be very low ranked. Also, if I just made a typical sculpture, sculpture even though everyone loves it, you might have to go to a gallery or a museum to see it. When you feel hungry, food is much more important than great art. So that made me think that art is so useless. But unfortunately, I like to make things. So I had to find an answer for myself. That is a very, like, I'm, I'm not an expert <coughs> in how the Japanese culture perceives itself or the people within the Japanese culture. But for me, in my prejudiced mind this sounds like how how someone from a from a society like japan that is a lot of lots about what is your worth to society mm -hmm. would think about artists <laughs> like this is yeah. completely useless though someone like i i can absolutely i would absolutely agree that the sculptor is not the lowest job the lowest mm -hmm. job on the tier list is absolutely podcaster <laughs> i was gonna say C i was gonna say ceo of twitter but you know i guess it's x now <laughs> yeah maybe that i just ha i just have to do an aside did you see what that he it, what the new ai there's like some new ai you can subscribe to on twitter or x or whatever the fuck it is and it's called grok g-r-o-k grok subscribe to grok and i just am like did a 13 year old make this name like what is this like i don't know maybe it's a reference to the lord of the rings memes gronk mm. I don't maybe know. i don't know anyway Let's back to it on. yeah yeah okay also he very much disliked how after every assignment his classmates would just throw away whatever they had sculpted like they would make this art and they would throw it out um when Andrea was in grad school, we would see this a lot. It would really bother us. Um, it was creating all this waste. And he was not interested in making things just for the purpose of making them and then to throw them away. And so he really starts to go, okay, I'm studying art and I think that my art should be something different. Uh, what if it was more whimsical? What if it was more funny? What if the items he made had some kind of use or function? And from this, he starts to find his own style. In one anecdote from that time, a professor asks them to create a goat sculpture, which he did. But the goat sculpture was also a flower pot. I will send you pictures. And because it was a flower pot, <laughs> when you watered it, water would come out of the udders. Ooh, that's so cool. I cannot forget that moment when everyone started laughing, Keita Takahashi says. That was when I realized what I should do, and I believed video games could provide joy and fun to people. So, um... As you might imagine, after he finishes his degree, he decides he's going to change his focus to video games. Um, here's some more quotes on that. that uh, just, just saying, because viewers are going to think this, listeners, this seems like a bit of a leap. I made a goat that <laughs> <laughs> where water came out of the udders. This must mean that I must make design video games. It is the obvious conclusion. <laughs> Well, I, think, I, I feel like there are steps in between that we are not being told. <laughs> well, okay, so let's. Uh, it seems like maybe there's a little bit of my my script here a little out of order, but let's let's just talk broadly about how this guy sees the world. And this is gonna this is kind of a weird quote, but you'll see. So he kind of like he gets from this that he should make people happy. Okay, like that yeah. making people happy is the the best thing that he could do. He had these greater aspirations for his art. So here's a quote: What I came up with is very simple. 
I thought that I would like to do something that makes people happy. It's so simple that you might think I really didn't give it much thought. But at that time, I thought, if a person could be happy or laugh even just a little bit, even for a moment, then they won't rush off to work and people and countries will perhaps stop fighting and doing these unnecessary battles. And in an extreme sense, perhaps this might, in italics, emphasized, might lead to a lack of racial discrimination and wars. Wow. John Lennon. <laughs> right there so okay okay so this college so he's in college he makes someone laugh with his heart and he goes maybe i could stop racial discrimination and wars with this But I see what he's going for, right? I see what he's I mean, going it's for. It's a larger picture, right? It's just want to do your part in it, right? Right. I'm teasing, but I see his point, right? Like, make yeah. people happy, and if people are happy, they won't fight each other. I get Don't it. Don't be such right? a cynic, Tyler. I'm the cynic. <laughs> You're the nice guy. That, that's true. That's yes. <laughs> so, okay. So, uh, why video games? Just to center this a little more, right? He wants to make people happy, but. Art isn't going to make him money in the way that he wants. Um, and, uh, you know, he'd make things, but he wasn't sure what people would do with them. And so he starts thinking about video games. Also, as an aside, just to talk more about his fun little sculptures, I have a picture of another one. He would make stuff like, okay, here's a table, but it requires two people to work together, and then it turns into a robot. Or, yeah, I just want to um, say to the listeners, this goat that you showed me looks like a perfect goat this is like the best goat i've seen ever sculpted it's genius and it is a, also a perfect flower pot and i also i can see a glimpse of the utter and it's brilliant the best utter <laughs> i've ever seen and i've seen real utters but this uh -huh. is like a fake utter that is it's a real deal okay uh, what, I, show me another thing show me okay. i want to see it <laughs> okay so this one i particularly enjoy okay so It's a shelf. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. I, I, let, let, let me describe it this time. Okay. You describe it. Looks it, like yeah. a, it looks like a, a robot man, a bit like Mega Man does, just orange. So everything is orange, but there's like a round circle that like leaves, leaves out room for the face to look out of it. And it looks really angry to the side. It gives someone the side eye. Mm -hmm. And its chest can kind of like open up, like, a, like you said, like a like a drawer or something and there's books in it i think and yes it, it looks really mad and i think you can move the arms right it looks like it looks maybe you like can it. move the arms i'm not sure about that but it's it's very much in his style to create this functional thing where you can store stuff in it but then you have to figure out how to fit like a gigantic orange spaceman in your house um yeah i love it it's so him is this already referencing the episode are we doing a Mega Man episode <laughs> We are not doing a Mega Man episode. Because it really does look a bit like Mega Man. It does look like Mega Man. Um, okay. <clears throat> so he finishes up art school. He starts looking for a job. He puts his focus on entering the video game industry because he thinks he might be able to make some money from it. Um, and also, I don't know that I explicitly said this, but it would, uh, this is kind of implied, but it would increase the chances people would be able to experience his art, right? It's not just going to be at some museum. You're going to be able to experience it. Okay. Yeah. Quote, making things was more fun than just playing video games that someone else had made. I knew that video games were a very popular entertainment in the world. You can buy games from game shops in any country. That is easier than going to an art museum. And video games are a medium that have a strong and intuitive interactivity more than anything else. I still think that the interactivity of video games is kind of a miracle. 
Um, here's another quote about the same kind of stuff. I was thinking after graduating, what can I do? I didn't want to be an artist. Art, that's useless and a necessary job. By the way, he says this in almost every interview. At the same time, I wanted to make people smile to make them happy. I just remembered when I was playing video games when I was a kid, they make people smile. And also, it's a worldwide business. If I was to be a sculptor, make an object, other people from other countries come to Japan to see my object. But a video game, you can get it anywhere. And that's a great thing. I thought, video games, there's no more trash bin. If I make a 3D object, there's plastic and metal. With video games, you just need electricity and a monitor. It's so clean. So this is how he's made his decision. Yeah, and electricity comes out of thin air. That's how it works. It does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're killing me, dogs. Okay, so he had played a bunch of games growing up. He really liked the Nintendo classics. Uh, I read some stuff where he said he really liked Final Fantasy and Dragon Quest. He'd like level up his characters, you know, that kind of young play an RPG for the first time obsession. But he really liked old Namco games. What are specifically like old Namco arcade games. What are examples of old Namco games? Were they already into fighting games? Was that a thing? Um so things like just um off, you know I just pulled up a list because there's so many like Pac-Man, oh. Galaga, Dig Dug, oh. Xevious. Oh man, I love Dig Dug. I played Dig Dug in an mm -hmm. arcade hall like a few months ago and that was like I had so much fun. Dig Dug. Yeah. Nice, cool. Namco. So yeah, I'm into it. That's the kind of stuff he's looking at. And I suppose by then I guess Tekken 3 would have been out by then. You They would have been into fighting games, because this is 1999, yeah. and Tekken 3 came out in 1997. So, so yeah. So Bandai and Namco were already uh, together, mm. right? right? They were not later? together yet. That will, that will come up later in this episode. Oh, okay. It's kind of a pivotal thing. Okay. So he interviews at Namco. To get into Namco, he had to do three things. First, he had to submit a portfolio of his work and do a small drawing test. He sent them stuff that he had worked on in art school. From there, he had to be interviewed by the company's senior artists. And one thing, he goes in this interview and he mentions to them that he doesn't understand why Namco is just like making the games that they are. Um, the games that they were making in the modern, you know, the time he was interviewing were not like the games of old, right? The things he liked about Namco. Um, you know, it was a lot of sequels. It was a lot of over-engineered stuff. He's like, why aren't you guys going back to the old stuff that was really good? Okay. And some people in this interview agree with him, but he makes it to the third step, the final step, an interview with Namco's executives. And he hits a wall. They don't like him. And he does not make it past the interview. They reject him for the job. Now, that could have been the end of the story. Uh... So we we know of no crazy dictator that came off of this, so it's not a artist gets rejected from art school story, so where are we going now? <laughs> that took me a second. Um, uh, one of the artists that he had interviewed with in the second step liked him so much that that artist went to the executives and convinced the executives to give Keita a job. And that is how Keita Takahashi started working at Namco. So he got rejected, and then they took him anyway. They took him anyway. He got a rejection. They said, you didn't make it through. And this artist went to bat for, for, for Keita. And Keita asks him, why? Why did you do this for me? And the guy says, you looked very unique. And I felt that there was potential to make something fun with you. I mean, that's probably so he gets in. often a a reason to 
collaborate with someone, right? I, am I gonna have? Mm-hmm. Am I gonna enjoy working with this person? And then I will try right. to probably further his career if I get the opportunity. Right. So it was luck. Nice. It was total luck. So he gets into Domco, <clears throat> and they put him into. And a not on, oh wait, wait! Not only luck, but also the persistence, because he mm-hmm. always tried his best. He wouldn't have had the luck if he wouldn't have tried his best at any given moment. I would agree, and also. Um, Keita Takahashi, as you'll see throughout this story, is very much the kind of person that does not compromise who he is. He is very much, he has visions and he sticks with them. And I think that for, nice. for better or for worse. And so he very much went in and unapologetically was himself and someone respected that. Oh, you got to respect that. Yep. And yeah. so that was cool. Um, so he gets this job at Namco. They put him into a six-month training school at the company that would teach him the basics. And now, this is kind of a story for another time that we don't need to dig too into, but Namco picked this model up from Konami. Um, and Konami had had a lot of success, like, training talent in-house because there was, like... Um, like they were seeing success with like you would bring people in and you would train them in-house and then they would work for you and so um, they knew how all of your systems worked instead of trying to get talent from other places you were creating your own talent you from basically within. you have integrated people into your system which yeah right this sounds perfect yep yeah. So Namco had been seeing, there was a bit of a dip in the Japanese gaming industry at this time, late 90s, early 2000s. And Namco is like, ah, profits are going down. Let's make our own training program. This is what Keita starts in. And this turns out to be really good for him because he's an artist, right? He does not have the skills he needs to make games. So he's learning things like... He's not a math lover. Nope, he's not a math lover. His, His mom is so sad. He's learning things like 3D modeling, texture mapping. They put him in an actual arcade where he works for a couple of months. He gets to work with all the staff, learn all this stuff that's like directly applicable to his job. Um, he also uses a Silicon Graphics workstation, which is something we've brought up like seven times in this podcast because they were like top of the line graphics stuff. That was like the that was like the 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 most like uh, high 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 performing graphical uh, workstation there was. Right, the PlayStation guys used those too, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and wasn't, weren't, weren't they used for Jurassic Park and stuff? Like they that? were. I think maybe it was um, Crash Bandicoot. We talked about this. We did that episode years ago. So oh, yeah, 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 I'd have yeah. to go back and double check. But anyway, they've been around for a while. Every time I see them, I think of that. But so um, then at the end of the six month program, he creates a mini game. He works with an engineer. They may create a mini game to test his skills. So the game he makes is called Midnight Justice. You play as bank robbers driving a car, and they are trying to escape from a giant police robot that is chasing them, and you're playing as the bank robbers, and you have to dodge obstacles, but then you also have to make time to turn around and fire missiles at this robot that's firing at you. And he says, quote, the biggest point of that game was the camera and game view. I wanted to show a police robot that chases you from behind, so the car... So the car the bank robbers are driving and the police robot are facing are coming toward the camera like one of the levels in Crash Bandicoot. You know, my true goal in life is basically to to, to unite all human beings in the happiness in the happiness of shooting the police. So that's that's basically and, 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 I'm I'm glad that in his first game he identified this unifying aspect. Of humanity, I guess. <laughs> Once we destroy the gigantic police robot, there will be no more wars. <laughs> yeah. 
I see. <laughs> okay. So after, after he finishes his training in Midnight Justice, most of the people he trained with got assigned to other projects, like existing projects that were already going on. But Takahashi was given something different. His boss remembered that, that Keita had expressed an interest in making fun and weird experimental stuff, and he agrees with Keita about the current state of games being made at Namco. He's like, listen, I get what you're saying. So knowing that Keita Takahashi does not fit this particular mold, he assigns him to a prototype project. Quote, my boss wanted me to think of a new game idea, but if I joined a big project, it would take a long time to finish. So he picks a small prototype project for me so I could think about a new game while I'm working. And such a small project was a good opportunity to work with veterans, and I learned a lot. So um, we'll skim over this a little bit, but he got put on this like arcade machine that was like a photo booth. You, you ever done like a photo booth, Docs, where you go in and you like pay or something, and it'll take four pictures of you or something? It was like that, but you could like edit yeah. it, and you could put little stickers on it and stuff. It was very... Ooh, nice. You know, late 90s, early 2000s. Um, but the project gets canceled. So again, he's sort of back in the wind. What's he going to do? All of his, all the other students are out doing things. You know, uh, they put him onto a different project. Okay. And they were trying to come up with a game. And he gets moved to this project called Action Drive. Action Drive. The designer of the game wanted Action Drive to be a spy game. Okay, and Takahashi is brought on to, to create some assets for the game. But as he starts working on it, he and the senior artists of the game are like, this game is dreadfully boring. It's just terrible. So what if we came up with a bunch of weird and wacky shit to shake up Action Drive? Takahashi comes up with this. <clears throat> My idea was, the queen of the cosmos was kidnapped by bad guys on Earth. The king of the cosmos wants to help her, but he is lazy, so he lets his son go help her instead. The obvious problem is, is that the prince of the cosmos is smaller than human beings, so he has to use his hammer-shaped head to hit the heads of people driving by, and then he hacks that human by sticking a small steering wheel on top of their heads while they are stunned. Okay. What? <laughs> okay, just to review. I think I know Can this game. I just can't think of the name right now. We'll get there. <laughs> so he has all these ideas. Okay, so there's this uh, uh, there's this prince. His sort of shitty father sends him to go rescue his mom, and he hacks into people. He smashes them with his hammerhead, and he hacks into them with this this thing, and then he drives them around. And he can put them in cars, too, and make them drive cars. And he has all these ideas that go along with this, like, this would give you an excuse to drive around like a maniac because you're an alien and you don't understand driving laws. And he also would be thought it would be funny if the King of Cosmos would give like random objectives and like that like weren't good ones or like advice that sucked. Like, oh, you should go that way. And then you go that way. And he's like, ah, I guess that was wrong. Right. Just to kind of fuck with you. Um, is, crazy objectives didn't make is sense. This, is this the Katamari Damasi episode? This is the Katamari Damasi episode. Oh, nice. <laughs> Does it all track, right? Weird artist wants to make weird things. Yeah. Now that I think of it, okay. nobody else could have created this game, but the person that you have just created <laughs> described to me, it makes absolute sense. <laughs> yep. So he's like, this is great. And he presents all of this to the designer. And the designer is like, 
No way. <laughs> no, we're not doing that at all. Imagine you were pitching Katamari to Masi to Damasi to anyone, and what 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 must their reaction be? It must do. What the fuck have you been doing? <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we, we so want this guy's to sell this like, to people, right? You know that. <laughs> well, one thing that you will see throughout this episode is that um, Keita Takahashi also often makes um, ideas for games that um, conflict with. Um, selling them yeah because he's an artist and he wants to make art but okay so this guy is like hey um that's all well and good but we're not going to do that but maybe what you should do is take the characters that you made and save them for when you make a different game someday <laughs> so what why don't you okay i i i, I really appreciate this work <laughs> but why don't you take all of the stuff that you did and Fuck right off. Like, right now. That's the door. Just go. I, so he does. He fucks right off. And he saves all those characters for a different oh, game. Thankfully. Which this is, yeah. as we're getting, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves, this is why in Katamari Damacy... All the characters from the cosmos have hammerheads. Yeah, once because you, it is the original designs from Action. Once Drive. you said that, I I knew the game. Yep. Not long after this, Action Drive is canceled. Sucks to suck, buddy. Mm. And Takahashi yet again needs a new project. Guy cannot catch a break, right? He talks to his boss about how everyone he's trained with has worked on projects by now. What should he do next? Should he just should he just do like another sequel to a game, right? Like if he just does something boring, maybe, you know, that'll get some games under his belt and they know it's going to release, you know, there's always going to be like Tekken 8 or whatever. But then start talking and he's like, what if you, like, maybe this is a time when you make your own game. Maybe this is it, right? And this is what his boss decides on. Keita should really think about making his own game. And so as he tells it, he like worked on some little stuff in Namco he didn't like have like like time set aside that's just like oh this is my sit aside to make a game time right it was just he's doing stuff and he's thinking of ideas but of course coming up with a new idea can be hard quote i was and am looking for the ideas that only video games can do and only i can do and something new of course i might be able to think about a fantastic soccer game or a new car racing game or an ambitious shooter but other developers have made those also, I wanted to make a game that makes people smile, like the sculptures I had done in university. So, finding a nice game idea is hard for me, even now. So how does he arrive at Katamari? Oh, I, I was going to say, if any game is going to make you smile, it's Katamari Damacy. So that's completely right. It is. Yep. Okay, so where did all this come from? He had seen the prototype for a game by Sony called Densen which means power line in Japanese. It was this cute little prototype game about a young girl who would take this like coat hanger and glide around on power lines through town, which sounds really cute, but the more I think about that, that's probably a terrible health hazard. <laughs> um, but he was struck by this, yeah, just take this piece of metal and glide around on electricity. That's sure. But he was struck by this game <clears throat> because it didn't have any violence. It didn't have a power fantasy. And he really liked that it, it was like small changes to the real and ordinary world to make it interesting. Like this idea, idea that you didn't have to go to a fantasy world. You could just play in the real world. So that sticks with him. 
And apparently Denson never released, but it did plant some ideas in his head. And one was a big one, like I said, that you could make a game that didn't have like combat or violence or things like that. <clears throat> Another thing turning around in his brain is something called Undokai, which are days in which elementary school students in Japan, they do like this big thing where they all work together as teams to compete against each other and all their friends and family come to watch. It's like kind of a big fun thing for students. One of those games involves pushing around a giant ball until it lands in a goal. And so he's on his commute to work. I think it was to work or from work. It doesn't matter. He's commuting from work. And he's walking to the train and he has all this stuff kicking around in his head. And suddenly he starts visualizing something spinning, collecting things in itself and growing bigger and bigger. And by the time he had finished his train ride, he has an idea for a game. The next evening, he goes and has dinner with a friend who is a game designer at Nomco. And Keita would pitch this guy ideas because sometimes Keita felt like an outsider, right? Like he wants to make a game, but he's just really an artist. And, you know, he'd pitch him goofy stuff and they'd laugh about it and go, oh, yeah, haha. But this time the guy goes, wow, Kata, this is a game. So Kata goes to work the next day and he goes to his boss with this idea. He says that his boss understood it immediately. Kata suggests he could reuse the characters from Action Drive that were already made. Quote, the prince is so small that you can start this game from a very small level and get to a big one. And the king of cosmos is just crazy. It was a perfect match. And my boss said, good job, Takahashi-kun. You made it finally. I know it was just an idea and not actually a game yet, but we were on the same page already. You know why, why his boss also liked it? Because his boss in his mind always calculates how much money the stupid design phase of a game design costs. And he was like, <laughs> this is already done. So you, you kind of saved me like a quarter of the budget for this game. So we're very likely going to make a profit on this. Yeah, this is a great idea. I'm into it. Oh, we'll talk about some budget saving mechanisms here. Okay, but here's a big problem that's going to, we're going to hit another wall here. And that is that Takahashi was an artist, not a game designer. And due to how Namco is structured, um, he had no formal pathways within the company to pitch a game to the higher ups. Like he couldn't just go to the higher ups and pitch a game. And that sort of rigid structure within Japanese companies is, is actually pretty common in a lot of companies. Um, even still today, some companies operate like this, that there's no, this formal structure is very rigid. Quote, I talked with Mitsuoshi Ozakai-san, my boss, about how we should move this idea forward to an actual internal production. Usually game ideas were proposed from the game design department at Namco, but we both worked in the art department. Also, technically, Ozakai-san was not my actual boss at the time. He had moved to another department. So I talked to my current boss about my idea first, but he was not a manager of game designers. He was a manager of artists. He seemed to not have a bad impression of idea, but he couldn't make a decision about the game itself. So he's going around. He's talking to all these people. No one knows how to actually pitch this. Ozakai, I guess Takahashi's former boss, had this idea, though. There was something going on at the company at this time. Remember I talked about how they were trying to train people in-house? They had put together a course called the Namco Digital Hollywood Game Lab, which would bring in instructors from the company and teach them how to make games for the PlayStation 2. Um... Some of the instructors there had worked on Soul Calibur. They had worked on Tekken. You know, they were sort of like veterans from the company. The students in the course had been learning how to make graphics, but they needed a project to collaborate on, something simple that they could all work on together. Takahashi's boss 
who's really into the idea for this game and talks the school into picking their idea for the game to work on because they're like, if this is a game about a ball rolling things up, the students could work on simplistic different objects that could exist in the world to be rolled up. Good fit, right? Yeah, nice and cheap too. And very cheap, <laughs> see? Yeah. <clears throat> and so I don't, I don't have info on this and I'm not actually sure when they picked the name um, Katamari, but they name it Katamari Damashi um, or Katamari Damasi in other places. Um, so I'll just start calling it from that from now on. And for those who are curious, Katamari can translate to something like clump, clawed, or lump. Okay. Uh, Damashi translates into something like spirit or soul. So you could call it like clump of soul, right? Is, is kind of like how that translates, like clump soul or clump of soul. Yeah. My clump, my clump, my clump, my clump, my lovely solely clumps. Uh, mm, hmm. Yeah, um, so, um. <laughs> Kita says that that name just popped into his head and that's what he went with. <laughs> cool. <laughs> so, okay. So they're put they're they're putting together a team and they're trying to figure out where the fuck they're going to get people for this team. And they're trying to cobble together this team from like literally anybody who will work on this project. So they have 11 students from the course, <clears throat> but they're like okay, we need like actual game designers with experience. So they ask around in different departments, can anybody participate? Almost everybody says no. And then apparently the department that made Namco's arcade games decided to lay off a bunch of mechanical engineers. And Keita's team goes to them and says, Okay, would you rather be fired from Namco or would you rather work on this weird game with us? And so they all came on board and they joined the Katamari team. So they get three programmers from Namco, Namco's arcade machine department and three visual designers. And then they set this goal that they want the game to be playable by the upcoming Japan Media Arts Festival. So they set this little deadline for themselves. It's in like six months. They put together a working prototype. It hits. Everything's great. <clears throat> We've got a prototype of the game. Everybody's happy. Okay. So look at this prototype. What do they do with it? Well, all of this is happening on the con like the backdrop of the console wars that we've talked about in previous episodes, yep. right? Although this is a little like later into those console wars than what I covered in my stuff. The next generation of consoles is on the horizon. The PS2 hardware based entirely around running 3d games was tempting to the team, but Sony's documentation at this time to put it succinctly really sucked. And there weren't a lot of people that they needed on the team at the time. So they see the GameCube coming out. It has this developer friendly kit. They're on a time crunch. They use the GameCube platform. Now, if you've played Katamari, you know later it came up on the PS2. We'll talk about that later. But originally, they start with the GameCube. <clears throat> they have this prototype ready. What do they do? They have to make a full game. And suddenly now, it's not just making this fun little thing to take to an art show. Keita is now thrust into the role, having gone from being an artist to managing a team of people as a director. He has to learn this entirely new skill set on the fly. I bet that was like really scary. To talk about the mechanics of the game. Uh, since I don't know that we overtly spoke about how no, this game actually works. No, let's explain Katamari to people. It's because it's important to explain this because it's really, it, you can't compare it to a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, it just kind of is what it is. So, okay, you start off as this little 
like this little guy, the prince of all cosmos. He's this little green guy with this like hammerhead. And he is standing in front of a ball and the ball has these little like bumps on it. Okay. These weird little bumps on it. And what you do is you roll over stuff with the ball and it will stick to the ball. Okay. So you start off picking up very small things, right? Like pencil erasers and like, you know, weird little pieces of paper or whatever, <clears throat> candy wrappers, just things that are small enough to stick to the ball. And so like the first level is like a Japanese home. So there's all these little things about um, thumbtacks and erasers. Like I said, paper clips, pieces of junk. You find things that are bigger than you. And then if you bump into them or they bump into you, they'll knock you around. And so you have to sort of strategically figure out what you want to roll over to get bigger and bigger. And there's like generally like this little alarm that will go off if like a critter is going to smack into you or something. Because if you get hit, stuff will fly off your Katamari. So you, strategy there. You can see larger items around, which incentivizes you to roll them up because just about everything in the game can be rolled up. And you start picking up larger and larger items and suddenly you're picking up chairs and suddenly you're picking up cars and suddenly you're picking up houses and suddenly you're picking up continents and the game just spirals out of control, right? And that's what's fun about it. Yeah, it's really amazing. And, and the music is really nice it, too. Oh, we're going to talk about the music. I think it's my favorite part of the game. Um... Every object you pick up, it tells you what it is in the corner, and it adds it to an encyclopedia, so you can look through them later if you want. Um, canically, one thing that I found noteworthy is that when you get large enough, the game will like pause for a second, and the camera will zoom out so that you can see the ball better. Um, apparently, some of that was just due to like technical limitations. They would phase new items into the game and then phase old items out, so things that were too small would just get phased out and disappear. Yeah. Um, But yeah, like I said, some levels you start getting big enough to roll up like screaming people and buildings <laughs> and all kinds of stuff. Larger and larger, you roll the ball bigger and bigger. Can you get it big enough before the time limit? Go, go, go. It's just like intoxicating, right? And as you get bigger and bigger, the ca they tell you in the game like, oh, this is how your Katamari compares to other stuff. Like your Katamari is the size of 850 ballpoint pens or six townhouses or whatever. It's just so fucking fun, right? Like it's so fun. And um, when you finish a level to those who haven't played your father, the king of all cosmos, who is kind of like, what if like Technicolor Freddie Mercury with a hammerhead yeah. Uh, comes to talk to you. Is, he opens his mouth and a insane. giant rainbow spews yeah. out. Oh, he's nuts. Absolutely nuts. Uh, he will inspect your Katamari. He will grade it based on his criteria for that level. And I will say that like one good thing I liked <clears throat> about that all is that like if you fuck up, you don't finish the level correctly. The only thing that happens is he scolds you and is like a real shithead, but you don't lose progress or something like yeah. that. Uh, even the title screen was genius because it shows you how the mechanics of the game work before you even start it. The prince is standing in front of his Katamari. In front of him is the Nomco logo. It shows you on the screen how to maneuver the ball. And to start the game, you have to roll over the Nomco logo and pick it up. You already know how to play the game before you've even started it, right? It's like the entire mechanic right there. Genius. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty basic, right? And from what I've seen, seems um, incredibly fun. I've played similar games but i've actually never played katamari oh, you've never played so katamari I've, i've 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 seen footage and i know how it looks like and i've i've i love the music i have a playlist saved on spotify that is just katamari music because i like the music so much but i've never played it but around the same time there was a lot of similar games that had this whole suck up small things to get bigger mechanic i would say that i don't know for sure 
but it 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 could be that some of those were in response to the how big of a hit yeah, it yeah yeah as you said we couldn't really talk about katamari damasi without talking about the music. The sound director was a man named Yu Miyake, who was a man that Keita had worked on um, previous projects with. And one of those projects was a video project called Texas 2000. I don't know much about it, but that's where they worked together. And Keita was so impressed with uh, Yu Miyake's sound work that when it came time to pick a sound director, he was like, this guy, I want this guy. And Miyake had a specific vision for what the sound design would be like. One major theme throughout the the game is the usage of humming. He said in an interview that people tend to remember the music from old games more than newer ones, and that a certain tune might make them remember the game. So to sum it up better, he thought that like earlier games had catchier tunes. Things would get stuck in your head and you'd hum them, right? Like think Tetris, think Mario, think Zelda. Like some of the, like you can hear that little clip and know it instantly, right? Yeah, probably you probably so, just have to hear the first three notes and you you already know what you're listening to. Right. So for those of you who have never played Katamari, uh, there's this humming on the intro track. Do you want me to do it? It goes... No 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 katamari damashi no 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 katamari damashi pum 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 Oh, it's like so the, good. And like the intro jazz like, variations of it, like there's so much music was spawned just in reference of this that is so amazing mm -hmm. so yeah you can literally just go na 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 and you immediately know it's Katamari and that was purposeful that was purposeful to make a catchy tune that was associated with that game instantly recognizable so <clears throat> To make the rest of the music for the game, they brought on several composers who had worked within Namco, including those who had worked on some of their fighting games. But one person that I want to point out in particular is named Asuka Sakai. She was a composer who had worked on several video games up until this point, and she had done some work for Namco too, I believe. Why is she important to the story? Well, because Keita Takahashi married her. <laughs> I was never able to... Yeah, right? I... Um, was never able to figure out how, like, what the turn of events there was. One source suggested that um, they got married before Katamari was a thing. Like, maybe they knew each other from Namco. I don't know for sure. But well, if it's Japanese um, company culture, it was they were working in the same project. It were already a couple, and then after getting light financial success, their boss allowed them to get married, and then they got married. <laughs> I truly have no idea. Um, but I wanted to point it out because she will come up throughout the story a few times. Um, and that is how they sort of knew each other. Cool. And she worked on Katamari, composing the music, some of it. Okay, to create the music for the game, they hired 10 famous Japanese vocalists. The team at Namco wrote a bunch of songs and then gave each of the singers loose guidelines and then had the vocalists sing over them. They tried very hard to get a broad spectrum of different singers so that there would be singers from different generations, and they wanted broad appeal from the music, so they generally found artists that had not had hit songs for a while. So you have this weird mishmash of all these singers and even like anime voice actors who are all very talented, but just had not been heard from in a while. And so once they signed on individual vocalists, then they developed songs for those individual people to fit their style. And so... Um, it was very much created with the purpose of making 
Katamari music, not like taking outside influences, so to speak. There were no singers from outside of Japan because at this time they did not expect the game to make it from overseas. Um, but they were like, you're going to have to listen to these songs like a lot. So they stayed away from trendy musical styles. They wanted sort of tried and true stuff. So you end up with, you know, jazz and samba and like light techno. It's all, it's a very unique blend. And I know it's like I'm spending a lot of time on the music, but I truly think that Katamari would not be the game it was without the music. It is just so iconic. I can imagine it. It's, it's also just weird and jazzy. Also, you can listen to it uh, endlessly. For, uh, I think what mm -hmm. you just said fits perfectly. It, it's just something you, you'd probably get annoyed of it, but it takes a long time. I'm also, I'm very resistant to getting annoyed by music, but I think still it's amazing music. It really is. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so they end up meeting that deadline. Like I said, they demo the game at the, ja yeah, the Japan Media Arts Festival. It's a hit. Everybody loves it. And because of this, within Nomco, excitement builds. The students are happy. The developers are happy. The team does a presentation to the company internally. The employees like it. His old boss, Ozakai, starts meeting with executives in the company and mapping out a release. And they decide on this deal. The game would get a, a budget. It would get a full release from Nomco. But it would not be developed for the GameCube. It instead would release on the PS2. Kato was happy with this anyway because he liked that the sticks were next to each other on the PlayStation yep. controller. Um, I agree, it plays way better that way. He would get a budget of around 100 million yen, which was something like, depending on the currency conversion, somewhere between $650,000 to $800,000, depending on the time frame. And full production would take place in 2001. Also, as part of this deal, they decide he's going to have to work with an outside development company called Now Production. Keita agrees, but he starts to worry because now he's letting this outside company in on his vision, right? He starts splitting his time between Namco's headquarters in Tokyo and now production's offices in Osaka, which is about a two-hour bullet train ride. It was through this outside company where most of the development of Katamari would occur, and Keita oversaw both teams. Keita spent about 90% of his time in Osaka and then would come back to Tokyo every three weeks. And it turns out, he really ends up enjoying working with these people and it all goes fine. So sometimes in these things where they're like, oh no, this outside group's going to come in and ruin my thing. It did not go that way. It worked out yes, perfectly. I, I can, I still understand it. Like he has this baby and he, 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 so much of it is his design and him. And I mm -hmm. would fear, I would, I would fear the moment as well where I would have to give my baby to someone else and be like, please don't ruin this. Please don't make this different than it's supposed right. to be because it can happen so quickly. It really can. And I think um, we'll gloss over some stuff I had on this, but, you know, to that point, he very much had to learn as like, you know, a producer here of this game to like to be in charge to stick to his vision, regardless of what other people wanted. And and so, you know, some people thought like, oh, the idea of rolling stuff up was too simple. What if we added in this other mechanic or like, um, you know, what if we added in all this extra collectible stuff and what, do, you know, all these other mechanics. And he's like, no, modern games are bloated. They're overcomplicated. Fuck all of you. We're going to do what we want. I'm going to make this thing I set out to do and management. You can fuck off all these weird team members. You can fuck off. I'm making this game how I want it. And he's, he's stuck to that. Nice. Good for him. In September of 2003, 
The game debuts for the first time at the Tokyo Game Show. It was a single-level demo that was available to the public. Apparently, the feedback was very positive. Now, before we move on to talk about the Tokyo Game Show, I want to note, there's like some weird reporting errors here. I have like my pet theory of how this went. It's kind of irrelevant either way. But just when you look at this particular event, which is important, there's some discrepancies. So, <clears throat> at the show... Some Americans saw the game and enjoyed it, and they called it the rolling game. In one version of the story, one person in there in particular was there to see Takahashi, and her name is Robin Haneke. She was a game designer at Northwestern University, and she was part of what was called the International Game Developers Association. In one version, and I don't know if this is like a reporting error or something, it is claimed she met Takahashi while she was in grad school and like some other way how that happened was unclear and that they had become friends and that she had come to the show specifically to see him when she found out he was making something. Yeah. Okay. In another version, she, it's said that she came to scout out people for this game developers conference. Either way, she ends up at the show. Okay. She had been reading up on what in this version, she had been reading up on what they were calling the dung beetle game and wanted to try it out. And she describes finding the Namco booth. Quote, it was this tiny little screen in a wall with this little shelf controller, and there was some stuff around it in Japanese. I picked up the controller, and I was like, this is the greatest thing that I have ever seen <laughs> in my life. <laughs> so she and others from the group she was with had decided they wanted Keita to come to the 2004 Games Developer Conference in San Francisco. Specifically, Haneke was an organizer for the developer workshops at, the, at GDC and wanted to show Katamari Damacy at the Experimental Games Workshop at the conference that year. So, like, we want you to come to this conference. We want you to be in this experimental thing. And basically how that worked was, like, all these designers would show off, like, weird and new, like, groundbreaking ideas. So however she first meets him, it doesn't matter. But she's impressed by the game and ends up asking Namco... Can Kata come and do this thing? Hey, Namco, can Kata come out to play in the United States? And that's really weird at the time because this is the early 2000s. And Japanese game developers didn't really do this, right? Like, they didn't really have events where they would just go and talk about design. Yeah. But Namco's and like... You can make games, right? Just go back into your basement and make more games. <laughs> <laughs> back to the pit. Um, Namco, however, agrees, and we will come back to this. Now, Sony is really thrilled with how this is all playing out, and they apparently really liked Katamari, so they pushed for an earlier release date than had been planned. In return, they say, if you can do this earlier, we will help you with all of the advertising for the game. Okay? Um, the hope was that they would get, like, a boost in sales, like everybody would be happy. Sony would pad their fiscal numbers. Katamari would get a better release and advertise. They did. There were billboards. There were posters. Stores had demo discs. There was even a TV ad that became pretty popular. And I'm going to send it to you right now because it's very quick. And I want you to tell me what happens in this commercial. Let me watch it. Okay. It's very quick. <laughs> I didn't know that. Okay. It's basically... A very gray office building and a woman says something to a man and then he says something like, yes, I'm going to get up. And then he stands up, but instead of standing up, 
basically the couch he's sitting on is attached to him and he starts rolling forward with the couch and then the next couch and the woman attached to him and then they, they roll out of the room into the next room and they basically turn into a katamari and then the um uh then the katamari music starts humming <laughs> yeah that was really funny good ad really good ad really good ad tells you everything that you need to know in 15 seconds right yeah it's perfect and it really catches you okay it really yeah catches you off it's so, right it's like perfect so the game finally releases in japan on march 18th 2004 it sells around 35,000 copies in the first week part of this was that the game only cost 4,000 yen which is about two-thirds of the price of a new game there at the time so it's cheaper than other games not long after the release in that same month, Kata shows up at GDC to give the presentation that I mentioned earlier. He walks out on stage with a shirt that says ROCK AND ROLL in all caps. He shows them how you roll up the Namco logo. He shows them an insane opening video where they're playing that music and it just gets increasingly louder and they're singing animals and the King of Cosmos is flying around and there's fucking rainbows and shit. <laughs> he shows them how to roll up items and the crowd just laughs and laughs. It's a huge hit. And here's a quote from the Boss Fight Games book that I used for a lot of sourcing in this episode. Quote, Darius Kazemi was in the audience that day. He wrote that, quote, the feeling in that room when Kata showed Katamari was just electric. It was amazing to see all these game developers, literally the best of the best in the world, in complete awe of this weird little game. At the end of the presentation, when he said that there were no plans to port it to the U.S. market... Everyone was just devastated. No. Oh, yeah, yeah, he, he yep. hypes them up and then they, then he stabs them into the heart. <laughs> oh, by the way, you're never going to play it, so go fuck you. And then he walks off stage, yep. middle fingers raised, backwards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the man in the rock and roll t shirt <laughs> hurt me that day. <laughs> At the show itself, people get to play the game. The room is packed. It is standing room only, and people lined up to play the game. It was so different than everything else that was there. Because, remember, this is the early 2000s. What was coming out in the early 2000s? Multiplayer shooters. Yeah. And so then suddenly, American audiences get this fucking weird game where you roll shit up. It's colorful. It's funny. Like a, the characters in the game look like blocky toys, right? Like, some, it's so Some fresh different. air. And I, I, I think I, I now I really get the reference that he said in the beginning that he was missing the olden days of Namco because Katamari feels like an like one of those old games. It feels like Dig Duck. It absolutely does. And I, I really, yeah. Now I appreciate this connection because it makes absolute sense. And I think that is like, that must have felt really refreshing in this endless swamp that we still live in, of every year another shooter that's just the same oh boy madden's coming out and you know what's interesting too about that is yeah it's how do i put this you know if people didn't buy madden madden wouldn't exist right it's like i'm friends with a wine sommelier dave if you're listening to this yes i'm talking about you uh and you know we always talk about how like shitty wine to our taste right shitty wine exists but people still buy it and they like it and they keep purchasing it it's the most purchased wine like box wine low tier stuff people buy it so who are we to say 
that they shouldn't enjoy that. Who am I to say that someone shouldn't enjoy Madden or the new Call of Duty or whatever? But that being said, I was in a GameStop killing some time a uh, couple of weeks ago and a woman walked in and said, I want to buy a new PlayStation and they should, sure. And they said, do you want a game to go with it? And she said, what's the newest Madden there is? And that's the only game that my husband wants. And he died a little bit inside. But hey, maybe he's out there having a fucking blast, right? Like, but for me, I want the Katamaris of the world. Just Im- I want the weird shit. Imagining buying a machine like the newest PlayStation only to play Madden. I'm just I'm Madden. holding back tears. I'm it's really tough. <laughs> it's really tough to talk about this. But there's people that could make we'll more use of this machine. People could mine crypto with it. And it would be better used than playing Madden. No, nothing. <laughs> I also I I, I we'll get through I this, really buddy. I I hate American football. Like if yeah. if like there's many bad things that America did. But if there's one thing that is truly evil and should be illegal and punished, it's American football. <laughs> Also, can we just totally have an aside? So, like, um, like I'm staying with my in-laws right now, and they love football, right? And they're always, they're always like, hey, do you want to come watch football with us? I'm like, no. <laughs> right? And Andrea was telling them, she's like, I don't know that I have met a person in the world who is less interested in sports than Tyler is. <laughs> and I was just like, I understand from, like, a sociological standpoint, like, why they exist and why people like them. I'm not going to shit on people who like them, but they are just not for me. So right? it's, like, it's Super, it's super Bowl season, right? And um, mm-hmm. in Germany, that's a thing now, too. Germans now watch also watch the Super Bowl. And when so that sorry. started in Germany, a friend of mine asked me to watch with them, and I was like, okay, I've never watched a football game. I'm going to watch that. Mm-hmm. And that was painful, but I, I I sat through it, and I tried to understand what was yeah. going on, but I didn't. Did you enjoy f- uh, ten minutes of football each hour and fifty minutes of ads? Because that's basically Most is what ads, it is and then now. there's so many breaks. And they say, I, "Why are mm-hmm. we talking about football in this podcast? Can we carry on?" Okay. <laughs> Katamari Damacy is a wonderful <laughs> game, and it's great that sometimes the video game industry produces such great products mm-hmm. that. Um, show you that this medium is actually capable of producing innovative and new things that are truly enjoyable. Mm -hmm. It's true. And because it was so, to get us back on track, because it was so novel, the media didn't even know how to write about it, right? Like they're calling it like the snowball simulator or the dung beetle simulator, but media buzz starts to add up. And because of this press reaction, Namco is like, Maybe we'll release this to the United States and see how it goes, and then maybe we'll release it to the rest of the world. So that conference is why the world got access to Katamari. And so in Japan, the game has steady sales. It's in the top 10 games sold for nine weeks. By the end of the 10th week, it had sold around 102,000 copies. And sales aren't exactly what Namco wants, but Takahashi is just like, man, I hope that we just recover the money we spent to make the game. Okay. So it releases in the United States on September 22nd, 2004. I had forgotten about this because I bought it when it was relevant. Um, And it only cost $20, which is insane um, for that time. At first, it's like kind of this sleeper hit until the reviews start coming out. One Eurogamer review described it as, quote, it is the happiest game I have ever played and the happiness is infectious. I think that really sums up Katamari. Yeah. 
Nice. Copies start flying off the shelves. Retailers hadn't anticipated demand, and the game would sell out quickly. Sometimes they would stock the shelves, and the game would be sold out within, like, a couple of hours. But, still a niche game for a niche crowd. Growth is, growth is slow and steady. And this is jumping ahead a little, but by the um, October of the following year, the game had sold 300,000 copies in the U.S. But, it starts winning awards. It's included in a list of um, games in Time Magazine. It gets awards from GDC. The G4 Network gives them an award. All these art-related awards. The soundtrack is praised. It wins awards. Um, often, you'll see the Katamari um, soundtrack pop up as, like, you know, top 10 best game soundtracks of all time. It's on there. Um, Time Magazine called it one of the biggest cult hits in the history of video games. People started going to conferences and talking in speeches and presentations, talking about how this game was a complete experience. It did exactly what it set out to do and nothing else. It was simple. It was fun. It was accessible. It was just so different and it blew everyone's minds. What I really love about Katamari and my my wife once talked to me about this, that what she found finds odd about video games is the constant violence featured within them. And at mm -hmm. the time I was like, yeah, well, it's just part of it. But these days I can appreciate it much more that making a game that is not basically built around this constant theme of violence and anger and hate actually makes mm -hmm. me appreciate a game like Katamari much more, uh, which also applies to other games that basically manage to st stay away from this constant um, stigma, actually, for the video game industry of having to portray violent themes. And this is something I really like about Katamari. I totally agree. And, um, you know, that was what he set out to do, and he did it, and it stuck. You know, it didn't need... I mean, the whole idea of, like... I don't know, wrapping people up in a Katamari and burning them up into a star is still a little horrifying, but it's kind of like a dark it's, humor. It's magical it's reality, violent. Right? Because it's, it's, yeah, right. it's, it's, it's not, it, it's, it's not like something you can actually grasp. It's obviously nonsense. So, so that's what it, it is. is. It's supposed yeah. to make you happy and chuckle because it's, it's so silly. It's so, it, yeah, it is. So I actually, and, so Kata, and I was joking about the John Lennon thing and the let it be mm -hmm. all the world unites, but Katamari Damasi is a very good example of a piece of art that can actually be uniting in its silliness. Because it's, yeah. it's probably, be, if, you, if you show it to lots of different people, they, they all understand it because it, it absolutely requ it requires no language to figure out what is going on. It, because it's just nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. Uh, so I think it is a... Yeah unifying game i showed it to some of my i have some younger cousins um who are much much younger than me and uh i a few months ago went on a trip and spent some time with them and i showed them katamari and they just were like oh roll that up oh that's so fun you know yeah. like they, they had never seen something like that before um it didn't keep their attention as much as untitled goose game did but uh but they really liked that it game is also genius yeah it is um We'll talk about that, that. That game will come up in this uh, in this podcast here in a second. Interestingly, um, okay. But Kata is floored. He's just like, oh my gosh! Like I never thought that this this is not a direct quote, but just like that it would become popular abroad as well. Like he's totally surprised. Okay, here is a fun little side story. Now you might expect that this weird little game with strange characters, unique style. It's very bright. 
merch everywhere, right? Like you'd just be able to see, you'd see Katamari merch everywhere, but it didn't. Keita was very protective of the game and his designs, and he worried that merchandising might cheapen some of the charm. However, there's a little tech company called Panic based in Portland, Oregon, that made software, but not video games. At a show in 2003, they had created a bunch of very stylish shirts for their company that you could buy for them that were like really cool for being like trade show swag, right? And the shirts began this hit and they started selling them on their website. Someone who is friends with the co-founder, Cable Sasser, said that he thought it would be really fun for them to make tasteful Katamari shirts. So Sasser half-jokingly floats this idea to their only employee in Japan. His name was Nobuhiro Hasegawa. When they talk through this, Hasegawa thinks Sasser is being serious. Okay? Looks up the contact for Namco Japan, sets up a licensing meeting. Hasegawa meets with Takahashi himself, as well as some people from Namco, and gets permission to be the only producer of approved Katamari merchandise. Keita liked the parallels between his story and their company. He was a train sculptor who was making video games. They were a tech company who wanted to make t-shirts. Imagine the resolution, imagine the resolution of this cultural misunderstanding. Employer, I have, <laughs> I have um, now given you, give, I, I have provided us the opportunity to actually print the design that you have suggested to me. Uh, let's start printing the new t-shirts. No, dude, this was a joke. I was just saying, like, one of my guys said, hey, we should probably print those video game shirts in a very stylish way. No, I have done this because you have asked me. This is not what we have agreed upon. <laughs> and then, and then they have to print these shirts. <laughs> Does this contract look like a joke to you, sir? Yes. <laughs> so... They're like, okay, I guess we're fucking making t-shirts with Keita Takahashi. So Takahashi, they work with him. He makes most of the designs himself. I guess they, like, this is not a direct quote, but I read somewhere that they'd just be like, oh, he'd just, like, send us, like, a shirt that just had, like, had a bear on it or something. And we'd be like, okay, <laughs> right? <laughs> Nothing to do with Katamari, but sure, dude, if that's what you want. They were sold on their website, and then they would, like, take a bunch of them and give them to Namco so they could sell them, too. And while now you can find Katamari merchandise around if you look for it, that is a story how, for a time, a tech company in Portland ended up getting exclusive rights to sell the only Katamari merchandise available. I must say that Katamari merch that has absolutely nothing to do with Katamari is just the most Katamari thing to do about Katamari. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, isn't it? Also... We will mention Panic, the company, one more time in this episode later, so think on them. But Panic would go on to publish Untitled Goose Game. Ooh, cool. For real. Same company, right? With all this success, in December 2004, Namco announces Katamari is going to get a sequel, and it would come out the following spring. But there's an important caveat to this story. Keita Takahashi did not want to make another Katamari game. He was done. In his opinion, he didn't like sequels. The industry relied too much on sequels. Not new, fun, creative ideas. He's like, this stifles... Yeah, that was his initial criticism of right? the industry, right? Don't just do everything again and again. Just do new things. And I, I understand, Katamari Damasi mm-hmm. is its own thing. It does not need to be extended. He's like, this stifles the creativity of game designers. I don't want to make a sequel. And Namco is just like, well, um, this game makes us money. And money is awesome. So they secretly 
start developing a new Katamari, a new Katamari game without him. Behind the scenes, the sequel was going to be the exact same game, but Christmas themed. That's it. That was Katamari 2. Yeah, that sounds like yep. a money grab. Yeah, wow, nice. Kata finds out about this. What can we do to sell it to <laughs> Americans? Let's roll yep. up Christmas trees. Make it blue. <laughs> <laughs> so Kata Takahashi discovers this, and he, as you might expect, is not pleased. He's like, no, I don't want to make this game. I, I, I wouldn't be pleased, even if it wasn't Katamari that was ruined, like... Ah, they're gonna sell the game as a, my game as a sequel, and it's just the yep. Christmas version of it. Nice. Not because like too bad we're doing it anyway. So he gets strong armed. He has to make this choice: Do I let Namco make a fucking Christmas Katamari game, or do I involve myself in it and get some say? So he gets strong armed in, and he agrees. I know what he did. He does it. He does. He agrees. Does he agree? He said in one interview that he didn't want to disappoint oh. Katamari fans, so he's like, I guess I have to take part. So he directs yeah. a follow-up game, which was originally called Katamari Damacy 2, but would eventually be called We Love Katamari. Namco at the time wanted the game done quickly, and we won't spend as much time on development of this. <clears throat> they put together a larger team. It's a, it peaks around 30 people at one point. And the plot of the game, the whole plot of the game, makes fun of what Keita Takahashi was going through. The king of all cosmos is surprised how much people love the prince and his Katamari rolling shit up. They have so many adoring fans. <laughs> so he forces his son to go back to Earth to keep rolling shit up to make people happy. And then he forces all the prince's cousins to go do it too, which is how they integrated multiplayer. We have to give the fans what they want, Docs. So the missions in the game are all like fucking crazy, absurd requests from fans and when you go through to like it'll like all these hands will go up like pick me pick me and when you pick a mission like you literally pick a fan and take their request uh. <laughs> that is a very nice take on uh making a sequel actually interesting um they so you you roll around things different sometimes than a katamari so like in one level you roll up a sumo wrestler who needs to eat to get ready for a match and you roll him into food so he can get big enough um there might there's one level where like your katamari is on fire and if you don't roll up things quickly enough it goes out um you might need to like make it as big as it can be with the smallest number of objects or like i think there's one where it's like you're on a racetrack and your katamari is just constantly moving and you, you have to steer it um but it added like a versus mode, it added a co-op multiplayer, uh, it was chaotic, it was nuts. Uh, both people are controlling the Katamari at the same time. It's nuts. Um, and the game focused on leaning into fan service so much that when it released, the cover in Japan is just a whole bunch of Katamari fans standing outside of the Namco offices. With, like, we love Katamari signs. <laughs> uh, nice. In other countries it released, it was like an animated little thing of the prince peeking his head out of the door, and there's just all these fans outside of his house. <laughs> Quotes, I wanted to do the stuff that we can only do in a sequel, says Takahashi. I mean, there are many games that can't launch a sequel. A title name like We Love Katamari, a game based on fans, or the Japanese packaging, these would have all been impossible with a brand new game. And in another quote, I suppose I'm forcing things a bit, but I thought I might try to connect the real world with the game world just a bit. Well, I suppose I wasn't completely successful, but by feeling closer to the game, I thought that the enjoyment from playing the game might be different, more familiar, more fun. 
Also, I thought that it would be kind of silly and fun to have a screen where you select missions. The fans raising their hands and saying, pick me, me, and then make requests to the king. The music again was great. Uh, same guy came back to do it. Yumiake. One yep. of the music feels similar, but like maybe like a little more grown up. I think it's, it's, it's it. Yeah. I think that it succeeds in that. Um, it released in Japan in 2005, July 6th. It released in the United States uh, on September 20th of that year, Europe the following February, which was interestingly the first Katamari in the European market. We Love Katamari was the first one to drop. I was um, always, I was like, I, I, I came into contact with Katamari through <clears throat> the community around you. So I, mm-hmm. I actually didn't know of Katamari before then. Um, and I was always wondering if I just missed it as a kid. You might but have. apparently I didn't. You would have been like, I guess what, like a mid-teen around that time, right? So Yeah. Yeah. Also, Young it, was adult. A, it was a really niche thing. If you didn't know about it, you wouldn't know about it, you know? Yeah. Okay. Um, also of note, Namco released another Katamari game called Me and My Katamari for the PlayStation Portable on December 22nd of 2005. It was the first game in the series that Takahashi had no involvement in. The controls were different because the PSP only has one stick for movement. I remember, um, like, in I think it was, like, in art class, I had a friend who showed it to me on his PSP, and I, like, was not sure what to think about it. Um, but I guess it did okay. And with you the two games... You have a PSP, and you play that? What the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> Get some Madden, dude. Dude, did you fucking see Madden 2004? <laughs> dude, it has my favorite roster of big burly dudes who beat the shit out of each other and kick a ball around, dude. Dude, that was like the dream team when the Chicago Birdhawks were the best. And Let's not I'm spend sorry. too much time on, on I'm talking so sorry. about Madden. I'm so, no, I started it. No, Football no, fans, you don't, you don't I'm sorry. It's okay. No, it's okay. You know, um, listen, you're allowed to have an opinion, even if it's wrong. So anyway, um, <laughs> these two games are finished. Keita is unhappy about the current state of Namco, especially after what they just did to him, right? And he starts thinking that all of their decisions are based around making money and not games, not good games. And he starts thinking about leaving. He had traveled all over the world meeting game designers and different gamers. And here is part of like how he spoke about that in an interview. Quote, when I made Katamari, I was able to go abroad and everyone liked the game, and I was shown all these games that people made. I could really feel their passion, which I did not feel at all from the people at Nomco. And the interviewer's like, oh, a passion for game creation? He says, quote, right. They love games, and so they make them. So why do I have to make games for these Nomco folks who are thinking about money? It was a waste of time. The world is so big. I thought I could make different games. That was the biggest reason. So he's getting very mad about Nomco's focus on profits. And at this time, Nomco had been in a pretty poor financial state, thus why they were probably thinking about making, like, fucking Katamari Christmas special or whatever. And... With worries about the company, they looked for another company to merge with. First, they looked to Square Enix, thinking that it would be all three companies together, like Square Enix Namco. Um, that didn't take. And then they tried Sega, but the Dreamcast was doing poorly at this time. And Sega is like, oh, we're not really sure about Namco's financials here, so... Hmm. And Sega I th- I th- had... I think it sounded more like... I think we're dying. Why <laughs> uh, <laughs> the Dreamcast my, is dead. 
my, my heart just stopped beating. Can we can we release another Sonic? <laughs> oh my gosh. Hey, how weird is it that the guy who made Sonic is in jail for like fraud? That was very strange. Oh yeah. <laughs> that happened I like about that. Yeah, very strange. Um <clears throat> anyway, uh okay. So also Sega starts having talks with Namco about this and Sega had been talking to this like pachinko company that they were going to merge with already and this pachinko company is just fucking pissed that they're entertaining this deal with Namco and so they pull out of their deal with Sega and Sega's deal with Namco doesn't work either and no one merges. Whoa. So in 2006 you mentioned this earlier in the episode <clears throat> Namco ends up merging with a company called Bondi. Yep. Uh, Bondi brought a bunch of different IP licenses with him, including Gundam and, as we talked about in an earlier episode, Tamagotchi. It basically, didn't it go like, <coughs> I only roughly remember because I researched it once, basically Bandai was dissolved and Namco just took all of the IPs and just kept the name for branding. I think you might be right, but I don't have that in my notes. That sounds right, though. Um, yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd have to that, check sources too, but yeah, I think that's how it Sure. Kata says that there were <clears throat> a lot of internal politics at that time that were a real pain to deal with, and he was not happy about them. And there was discussion like, oh, we're going to get all these new, fantastic, valuable, existing IPs, and that we're going to want to focus on those, not new and creative things like Kata wanted to do. Kata goes that year in 2006 to the first Game City Festival in Nottingham. It's a game festival that takes place over five days or so. Um, the first year, he's asked to give a speech. And in that speech, he mentions something to the effect of wanting to build a playground someday. And that maybe he could do that in Nottingham. Um, he mentions the playground thing again around this time to Time Magazine saying, quote, In 10 years time, I am not going to be making games anymore. Uh, quote, I would like to create a playground for children. A normal playground is flat, but I want an undulating one with bumps. Mm, undulating playgrounds. <laughs> mm. H Health and Safety loves undulating <laughs> playgrounds. <laughs> we, we will definitely come back to this playground later. <laughs> okay. Okay. During this time, Kata also, starts getting also, this rep. No, what? sorry. Sure. The sentence, the man that made Katamari Damasi went on to design a playground, <laughs> sounds like, if, if you know what Katamari is, sounds like a very dangerous thing to, to, to do. Mm, you would think, yeah. <laughs> I promise you we'll talk about this playground. So... <clears throat> So during this time, he starts getting this reputation of being this really weird guy. Who'd have thought? Uh, he shows up to press conferences in, like, his bare feet. He avoids getting his picture taken. He very much breaks the Japanese norms and will directly tell you how he feels about things. He's just kind of a strange dude in some ways. Um, I realized I've not actually shown you what he looks like. Um, he looks like this. Uh, this is when he was working on something we'll talk about later. I'm imagining him like a man that has a nose and also eyes. And that's what he actually looks like. Yeah. Here's yeah. a younger picture of him, too. Oh, <clears> he's holding a to... prince. He is holding a prince. Yeah, that was from the, the earlier days. Okay. <clears throat> so 
he very much breaks a lot of Japanese norms. He'll tell you directly how he feels about things. He's just kind of strange and no one knows how to take him. And then <clears throat> in 2007, the first look at Keita's next game for the PlayStation 3 is revealed at the Sony PlayStation premiere event in Tokyo. The game would be called Nobi Nobi Boy. At the press, Bandai Namco press conference, Shin Ozunawa, the vice president of the company, comes out holding a silver stretchy hose with two pink balls stuck to the end. Here's the picture. Okay? Yeah, it's like a, it's like a dildo. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, if you go to show this, it, that's what it looks like. Yeah. Okay, it does kind of look like a double-sided dildo. I'll give you that. Um, reporters start asking him, is this a new controller peripheral? And he laughs. <laughs> I could just hear one reporter going, "What? hey, what, is this gonna? Is this controller going to have haptics? <laughs> Can you adjust this? <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, he laughs. And, <laughs> he laughs and says, "Oh, this thing? <laughs> no, no, it's not a controller. I just brought this as a visual aid to explain the game." He then plays a thirty-second clip of a long worm creature with four mm. legs, just sort of doing stuff and wiggling around. And he wants to demonstrate the mechanic in that with a real life thing. Okay, yeah, he does. <clears throat> and but so everyone is like, <laughs> "Still fucking time." So, and so everyone is like, "Okay, so what the hell is this?" And he goes, <laughs> "Quote: Takahashi told me to keep my mouth shut and just show you this video, but yeah, that's he fucking cute." But that's kind of hard considering there's 30 seconds of just this. <laughs> the, the wriggling is done through advanced physical calculations. <laughs> and according, according to Takahashi, this game wouldn't have been possible without the PS3. Takahashi was actually waiting for the PS3 release. Oh my god, I'm crying. But that was it. Nobody, nobody knew what the game was going to be. Okay, later that year, Takahashi is invited back to the Game City Festival to deliver the festival's vision statement for the year. The gist I get is that this like is probably like their keystone speaker. He shows off more of the game there and allows people to access a playable prototype. While it wasn't exactly a finished product at this time, I'll just give you the broad strokes of the game. The entire game revolves around the concept of stretching. <laughs> There are two characters Go named Boy Tyler. and... <laughs> it's I'm trying so fine to... This is like if you're in a classroom in biology and say like, mm -hmm. today we're going to talk about the penis. And Tyler was a little boy that would then, for the entirety of the one and a half hours, sit at the back of the room and be like... Well, yeah, because it's funny. You listen here. Did you just I keep... the penis? Penis. I keep laughing because every time penis. I say something... I see Doc's face and he smirks a little bit and I start getting the giggles again. <laughs> I, ju I just smirk because I enjoy this conversation. You smirk because you're a, a juvenile. filthy juvenile. Yeah. 
rotten person that mm -hmm. happens to also be on this podcast. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I was definitely the one who said it looked like a dildo. <laughs> <laughs> it was definitely me who did that first. Okay. Okay. Let's get back. Okay. What, what, what you okay. The entire game focuses around the concept of stretching. There are two characters named boy okay. and girl. You play as boy. That's the weird mm -hmm. wiggle worm. Nice. Okay. Boy, <laughs> to explain to the rest of you, looks like a technicolor worm creature with four legs. You control both okay. the front and and back half of boy the left stick moves his front it. half the right stick moves his back half oh, if really you cool. move this Tux <laughs> is trying so hard to serious up and he just can't he's trying so hard okay if you move the sticks in opposite directions you can stretch him out and that that oh, is how you accumulate points oh Oh you, yeah, cool. Oh, cool, Tyler. <laughs> do you have to like? Do you have to untangle yourself, or is it about propelling yourself? It is about making yourself as long as possible. As long as possible. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. <laughs> 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 and by stretching him out is how you accumulate <laughs> points. <laughs> They showed off a demonstration. <laughs> how, how did they ever pitch this to anyone without, without, without them <laughs> Maybe that's what happened to Sega. <laughs> <sighs> this is the first time I have ever seen Docs cry. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just a, it's just a wholesome story I, I just can't help it here's, here's a quote here's a quote <clears throat> by Keita Takahashi Keita Takahashi stretching came first period maybe, maybe it's worth mentioning that the game was not single handedly created by me <laughs> For the character of boy, one of the staff members handed me a sketch, and I liked it, so we decided to go with it. I made a few minor modifications to the idea, but that was it. In terms of graphics, we had to find a way to make the character not look disgusting. <laughs> we started out with puffballs attached to both ends of a string, but the long string for an abdomen made it look kind of gross. <laughs> Yeah, probably I'm like dying. a tape worm or something. Yeah, I mean the picture that you showed me looks pretty, pretty cute actually. Yeah, that was just the prototype. <laughs> or can you show okay. me a Vila one? Like, <laughs> this will not be going in the episode sources. <laughs> here's here's a more realistic looking one with more fancy, fancy more colors. Cool. Oh yeah, you mentioned that it has the legs. Uh, it has legs yeah. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> here's a few here's a few screenshots of it walking around and doing shit okay now that, wait, 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 wait. now that we talk like now that i see pictures i feel like that i've either seen someone play this or an iteration of this i think a friend of mine showed me this game before or a similar game um well <clears throat> it stuck around for a lot longer than it would normally after the release and i'll tell you why in a second um 
<laughs> dude, I'm like dying. <clears throat> when I laugh really hard, my asthma kicks up, and then that's how you know I was laughing really hard. Okay. <clears throat> You're allergic to fun. I am allergic to fun, yeah. I'm only okay. allowed to wallow in misery. Yeah. <laughs> On the name, <clears throat> Nobi in Japanese can be mean used to mean stretch. Nobi Nobi Boy is also, or Nobi Nobi is also used to mean carefree. So Nobi mm -hmm. Nobi Boy is a play on words. It's very Takahashi. <clears throat> you move around and interact with different objects and creatures. You eat things, including animals and even people, which lets you grow bigger and stretch longer. And then that lets you eat more things. Sometimes if you, if you eat things and then you stretch, you can poop them out. Um, and then it, they'll turn into weird stuff. So like one example I read was like, if you ate a person and you ate a strawberry and then you push them out, a person with a strawberry head would run out and start running around. It's very just like silly in that way. Mm -hmm. yeah. <clears throat> you stretch further and further. And then you submit your points to a character named Sun. And then Sun, which is this gigantic human-like creature with a sun head. I'll show you a quick picture here. Um, gives those points to Girl. Girl <clears throat> is trying to stretch the whole way to the end of the solar system and then back to unite all of the planets. Mm -hmm. But the kicker is that all of the points submitted by every player playing the game are cumulative. You are working with everyone else playing the game to help girl stretch further and further. And as she moves along, more levels on different planets would unlock. And so <clears throat> a journalist asked him to give a keyword that encapsulated the experience of playing the game. Quote, hmm, I would have to go with nonsense. This is kind of a nonsensical game, but that does not make it any less fun to play. The player is meant to feel like if this can be legitimately called a game, then maybe they could make a game themselves. That is what I had in mind for a long time, actually. Wow, that's portal. <coughs> He's like, yeah, this isn't even really a game, but if you could call it one, then maybe people could make, give them <laughs> inspiration <laughs> to make their own stuff. Then maybe, maybe people feel good enough about the trash then to actually release it. <laughs> You know, he does this all the time where he, like, talks shit on his own capabilities. I think it's just how he is. Yeah. It, I find <clears> it interesting <throat> that the entire, like, from the picture that you showed me, it, it from the color palette, it just looks like he's basically remaining within his within his own style of, mm -hmm. of what a game is. Which, um, I mean, if he sees himself as an artist, it's often about being distinguishable, right? So. Yep. I think now that I would, if I if I look at this, I would probably immediately think, ah, oh, this is, this looks like Katamari. What's going on here? And then I could actually figure out that it is from the creator of Katamari. Yeah, everything is sort of like weirdly exaggerated and colorful and blocky, and it's just it's very much his style for sure. Yep. <clears throat> so, you know, he said he worried that like experimenting with um, a word a bit about experimenting with new games and ideas because it's possible like what if the audience doesn't get what you're trying to convey what if they don't understand your art and it's riskier than just making a style of games that you know people are already going to enjoy they tried to develop it it was originally developed on the xbox 360 hardware but apparently a partnership with sony came later Takahashi made the decision to go with the PS3 for a couple of reasons. The biggest is, again, that the sticks on the controllers tend to be adjacent and symmetrical, and that felt better to convey mechanics. He likes that a lot. But also, because it was early in that generation of consoles, he wasn't sure like how easy it would be to develop the game for multiple platforms. 
He brings his friend uh, Yumiake to do the music again. It's good. Um, I don't think it's like Katamari good, personal preference, but it does have some really good yep. jams on it. Very interesting stuff. And in true Takahashi form, he says, he said in an interview, he didn't think anything about how to market it or how much it would sell or any of that. He just wanted to make it. Okay. The game released worldwide on February 19th, 2009. It only cost $5 because it was just downloadable. I don't think it had a physical release. Uh, about double that in Japan at the time. Reviews were generally positive, but a bit lukewarm compared to Katamari, and, and sales were kind of low. Criticism came in several forms. Um, first, the controls were really weird, and um, there are, like, no objectives. And uh, it's just a sandbox, which kind of turns some people off. Now, this is a time when, like, oh, what are the new graphics going to look like was, like, really emphasized. And this is just, like, weird, simple worm creature, right? Like, it's Takahashi style, but it's not necessarily for everyone. Um, yep. People who came from Katamari expecting more Katamari didn't get that. Um, the musical style was different for sure. <clears throat> but after the game released, Keda is like, we want to support this a bit. So they added, like, offline multiplayer, a bunch of various updates that added music, stuff like that. Um, quote, the first release of Nobby Nobby Boy had about 30% or 40% of what was intended overall. I think that's one of the strengths of the downloadable platform for games. You can keep updating to your heart's content. There are server costs and the price of the downloads, of course, so it does have its limitations. Um, one feature was what he called Fart Boy. If you ate something, when you pooped it out, it would yell the name of the object in either English or Japanese randomly. Takahashi thought that this was really funny and said, quote, that way people will also learn Japanese. So, uh, nice. so Tom, uh, why, why, why did you... Duolingo should try to Yeah, why, why did you start uh, trying to learn Japanese? Oh, you see this weird worm creature uh, pooped out a dog, and then uh, the game screamed Inu, and I uh, didn't know what to do with that information, and so now I'm fluent in Japanese, so... <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> you could also make boy... You, you gotta build the intrinsic motivation, and you have to basically make people encounter the language. And what is the best way to encounter mm -hmm. the language? By farting out a puppy dog and mm -hmm. then listening That's to exactly it. That's exactly it, 100%. <laughs> you can make boy also like dance along to whatever music was on your drive, and you know they did some stuff. But then there was like a funding issue that came up that had apparently been plaguing the project, and... Keda didn't open up much about it until after the game's release, but it seems like they he didn't really have enough money from Namco to make the game what he wanted it to be. It went over on time and over on budget, and the company was not thrilled. And <clears throat> he mentioned in an interview in 2009 to Eurogamer that he like announced that they were going to do like an iPhone port of the game, but that he said that it was just bait to try and get the upper executives to give him more money to keep working on the game, but that he didn't expect it would work, and it didn't really... Um, and in that interview, someone asked him how long it would take for girl to reach her goals if nothing about the game had been changed. And he said at the current pace, it would take 820 years. <laughs> His take on it is interesting. Quote, <clears throat> I have absolutely no regrets regarding the way we implemented the feature. I have been told to stop acting up and add some more game-like features, but I don't want to create a game with a predetermined ending, and I think it is okay the way it is. I don't think it is right to put an ending just for the sake of it. I believe that it is all right to create a stupid and irresponsible game. I really do. At which time was this? About 2009. Because this is really like 
a bit ahead of its time because with the indie culture that you have today in with mm-hmm. uh, independent developer releases, this is absolutely that probably strikes a note with current developers, but not uh, 15 years ago when Steam was still was already good 15 years ago, but not yeah. what, not what it is today. Yeah, I mean now <clears throat> it really does feel like game creation for any weird thing you want is like really accessible if you want to put the time in and every Um, year there's like a new release of something very odd mm -hmm. yeah yeah something really like very different i totally agree um they pressed him on the fact that players didn't stick with it for long because it didn't have objectives and then he he kind of blamed himself to paraphrase he said that games without objectives can be fun but that he thought that he had failed to produce something that felt like it was as fun as it could be um here's another quote on it quote bringing the title out to the market is an achievement for sure but for me personally a bit more of could have been done to the game i'm not completely satisfied with the game in terms of quality due to restrictions on budgets i won't go into what i wanted to add to the game because that's a really long list of things but as an overall assessment i think the game could have been much more detailed and easier for everyone to understand ultimately with nobby nobby boy i wanted to break the barriers between toy and game cool okay so what's next that year He decided to leave Bandai Namco because in his opinion, their engineers, as we'd said earlier, did not have enough passion. Now, the timeline I got here was a little fuzzy on when he actually left, but I know that like he's going to announce his next thing. And at some point in that, he he decides he's leaving the company. Um, Here are some quotes from various interviews that are a bit mashed together to get the gist of it. Quote, the reason why I quit Namco was because I started to feel like I didn't belong there anymore. The games I was making were not necessarily the best selling ones. I realized Namco was, as a business, going down a bit. Also, my colleagues were leaving to do another project. I started to feel like I didn't belong there anymore. And... Um, basically he said that they were just in it for the money. If he wanted to make something new, he would have to hire staff from the company. It was a whole thing. It was very limited, but even with all of that, this big decision, he decides that he's going to do it. And he's like, you know, quote, I was unsure, but I knew that the only option I had was to to continue moving forward. Someone asked him, what was the biggest change in his personal life now that he had left Nomco? And he just responded with, I have more time to talk to my wife. (laughs) Good for him. Good for him, right? In July of 2009, Namco released Katamari Forever, which was kind of like a remake of Katamari. It was the first mainline Katamari game that Keita had not been a part of. Like, the PSP thing had been before, but this was like a full Katamari game. Um, There would be many more releases, but we won't go through all of them. We'll just talk about them later. Okay, September of 2010. Keita Takahashi makes an announcement. He's leaving the gaming industry. He's going to work on other things. And what's he going to do? He's going to go work on playground equipment in Nottingham in the United yeah. Kingdom. Oh, yeah. I had some sources say, like, some sources were kind of iffy here. Like, maybe, like, Nomco paid for him to do this for, like, a month and then he left or, or something. But I don't know. Regardless, he leaves Nomco at this point. How this went down is, I guess, some of the game city organizers from, like, the previous years um, set this all up for him. Um so like the, the the head of the festival had made several requests for Keita to come back and then this idea of this park like stuck and somehow they get the city council involved and they decide that they want him to renovate this park um, part of a park called Woodthorpe Grange he would then work with the council 
and a landscaping expert to figure out designs and how they could integrate them. And then the, the council would establish a budget. And so he makes this announcement. The organizers put him in a car. They take him to a craft store. He buys a bunch of random art supplies, goes out into like this shack in the middle of some random house in the woods, shuts the door and just starts designing. Cool. Um, quote, then, <clears throat> I've been at, what's that? Has, has he come out yet or is he still in there? <laughs> Find out in this episode of Codex Rex, the video game history podcast. Quote, <clears throat> I've been asked this a lot and I'm not sure, like, why he wants to make a playground. I've been asked this a lot and I'm not sure why. I think that nothing has really changed in my objectives. I just want to, or I want to make people happy. I want to create something that everyone can enjoy. Um, <laughs> he comes, he starts coming up with all these crazy designs, as you might imagine, right? Quote, <clears throat> so my idea is very simple. Take some existing equipment, like a swing or a slide, and you just extend them and that makes it more fun oh, no. and dangerous Docs, oh, yeah. <laughs> i'm gonna send you a bunch of these playground designs okay let's look uh, at this i'm gonna okay, describe to you how i think people will like okay this is actually cool and i think i've seen many of these in playgrounds around here it's basically okay. a, it's basically a design for a swing But mm -hmm. instead, usually on a swing, there's only room for one person. But it's basically like a long like thing to sit on with many of the chains to the top of the swing. So like four people can sit on it on this at, at the same time. And right. that is something I've seen. That's pretty cool. Okay, what about this? That is like a donut slide. And you can turn it and you can. I've seen this too. This is a normal thing. Yeah, we have those. That's pretty okay. neat. What about this? It looks pretty fun. Okay, a this is this is how you're going to break a children's neck. But I mean, trampoline parks. <laughs> but seriously, trampoline parks They have been exist. opening up in the last few years a lot. So also mm -hmm. this, very innovative. Uh, it's mm -hmm. basically a, like 20 trampolines set up. In a, in a grid so you can jump between the trampolines which right. uh, okay okay a huge climbing thing where you can go up and i'm i've seen these too this is really good stuff this is like if you want if if you go to a playground and see one of these huge climbing grids when then there's a slide on top but also like a like a fire ladder slide then you know that you're on like one of the good playgrounds then another thing It's basically a slide that's set into the ground. This is really cool too. Man, this guy has some very good, but very basic, basic in a good sense, playground ideas. This thing looks like it would break your neck. <laughs> Moving chairs. You basically have a rail and there's chairs that are attached to the rail and the rail goes in a circle. And you can sit on the rail and push them. This also, I've never seen something like this, but it looks really fun. Also, the chairs that are attached to the rail can also spin around themselves. This sort of looks really cool. It does look cool. Um, my, but it does I think my, my, off, my offspring would enjoy this. <laughs> <laughs> so, <clears throat> however, the playground was not to be. Apparently, the city commissioners were not thrilled about the designs he was making, and they started to worry about safety. Further, they started having some budget issues, and they couldn't fund the project anymore. 
Quote, yeah, it's probably budget, right? Also, trampolines are probably horrible to maintain. And lots of these things are spinning. So you basically have to keep the spinning mechanism mm-hmm. oiled up for something that is outside, yeah. which is just a nightmare. It would be crazy. Um, quote, the UK's economic climate isn't very favorable, and the guy in charge of all that this at Nottingham City Council has projects of greater importance, which is why all this is pretty much slowed down at this time. Um, okay, so Kata has left Namco. His park idea has been crushed. He seems to be without direction. Um, but he doesn't want to go back to the corporate life of video game companies. So he thinks for a while, and he decides that he wants to return to the gaming industry. Later, he referred back to the Playground project like this. Quote, I decided I should be a billionaire to make Playground equipment with my own money. So that's the reason why I keep making video games. (laughs) His first step was that he and his... I I like his energy. I like his energy. It's just... he, He... He finds the solution to something and after he basically came up with the solution he figures out that he has to do other things and then does them first Mm -hmm. instead of yeah it's just a nice (laughs) that's a nice way of thinking yeah his first step is that he and his wife asuka sakai would create their own gaming company and they would call it uvula he would work on games and she would compose music why the name uvula Quote, I was going through the dictionary app on my phone and came across the word randomly. It jumped out at me. I didn't know the word before, but it seemed so beautiful to me. In Japanese, if you translate our word for that part of the body back into English, it comes out as something like throat penis. <laughs> something really ugly. So I like the nice, contrast. Nice, of- nice throwback, yeah. <laughs> Nice callback, Kata. Thank you. <laughs> so I like the contrast of this beautiful word in English with the weird, ugly word in Japanese. What is the, the uvula? What is that? That's the little thing that hangs in the back of your mouth. Your throat. Oh, that thing. That, yeah. Oh, I know the... I once knew the real name of it, but I forgot. Couldn't tell you. Yeah. Well, I heard it's called throat penis is what that's called. That's yeah, the technical so, term. Ah, yeah. That, that sounds like the technical term. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's in Latin. How was your throat penis doing? Oh, well, you know, I had to get it checked out. It was sore. (laughs) It was a bit of a cheap one. It was, yeah. Yeah, Well, you know. Still respect it. (laughs) He kept mentioning something in interviews, some project called Soup-O-Nuts, which he described as, and this is not verbatim, a web services project with true potential. I couldn't, I just could not find anything about this other than some vague allusions to it. So I'm guessing that didn't happen. At some point in time, he starts talking to Media Molecule, the people who made Little Big Planet. That doesn't happen either. He is just like, nothing's working out. He gets an offer from a company called Flickr. F-L-I-C-K-R, which was based in Vancouver, Canada. The co-founder was a guy named Stuart Butterfield, and he wanted Kata to come to work, to, to come to Canada and to work for an online MMO they were making called Glitch. Apparently, Robin Hunnicky, remember her from earlier from the GDC thing, had helped yep. them make the introduction. Okay. Kata spoke to Stuart. He played a little bit of the game. They found out that they share some of the same values about games, and he makes Kata an offer to work here. And Kata says, quote, 
I thought there was no reason for me not to go. Here's an idea of Glitch. It would be a casual multiplayer browser game, an experimental sort of MMO thing. The world that the players would be inhabiting would be, as I saw it described, quote, created by the imaginings of 11 god giants, or as they put it in the announcement trailer, they sing this, I'm not going to sing it for you, quote, for a really long time, 11 giants walked around. They thought of funny things until their thinking came alive. And that's what this game is. You're inside their thoughts. Go and make them bigger and we'll play for a long while. Sounds cute. The, yeah, cute little thing. The intention was that the community of the game would be able to influence the way that the world would develop. You would do quests, and the outcome of those quests might change the persistent world that everyone was playing in. So, like, you could grow a tree, and then other people could see that tree. You could alter the world for everyone. Quote, the game is about creating various objects from elements that are gathered throughout the game world. You can harvest butterflies, milk, or wheat, assemble them, and begin greater quests. It's basically a game centered on daily activities, such as making bread or producing various resources. Glitch aims at placing the player in this perspective. A lot of work has been done with regards to the game's visual aspect. I actually have this quote here, and I'm actually not sure if that was Kata, so sorry if I misattributed that. Um, it was a free-to-play thing. They would make money through cosmetics. Also, it had this weird tutorial I thought I would mention, and weird just because novel, I guess. So, okay, you know, like, when you start a game, and there's usually, like, a tutorial, and they say, here's how you play this game. Here's all the motions, here's all the buttons you hit, right? Even in an MMO, you might end up in a tutorial area. So, like, if you start up World of Warcraft these days, it'll drop you onto, like, a ship, and, or, I don't know if it's still a ship, but it's, like, a little tutorial area where they go, here are your abilities, here are how you use them, here's how you play the game, here's how you loot things, that shit, okay? In Glitch... You got put into a tutorial area, and the people in the tutorial area were glitch staff members or approved players who would come over to you and personally teach you how to play the game. Like, real people, and their only job was to make sure that you knew how to play the game. That was it. They would sit in the tutorial area and teach people how to play. How cool, but also how very likely to fail at some point. Yeah. I thought the same thing. Like, it adds, like, this really fun human aspect of, like, a real person comes up to you and says, hey, let me help you learn how to play this game. But also, there's a lot of room for weird error there. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> the game was released on September 27th, 2011 into a public beta. Apparently, this beta only lasted two months because developers were noticing that the game wasn't meeting their expectations. They switched to test sessions where they would open the game to the public, generate a list of bugs, and then close the game to fix them again. Keda also started to see problems internally. He felt that the game's developer, Tiny Spec, had shifted their focus away from Glitch and started putting their effort into a real-time collaboration platform that they were using internally. So they're like, well, we're making this game, but also here's this interesting collaborative platform. Maybe we'll put our energy there. And somewhere along the way, Robin Hunnicky joined the team. So this woman okay she shows up again my sources say maybe somewhere around march of 2012 she works there for a time and this is like her first thing right after she had finished up working on a game called journey mm. she was in charge of journey it released to much fanfare and when her time with the game was done she's like oh i'm gonna like go to tiny spec where keita takahashi is i'm not sure what happens she does not stay there long she leaves Okay. By December of 2012, Glitch permanently closed down. There was not enough of a user base to support the game. 
Kata posted a bunch of his ideas that he had uh, for the game online. You can still go peek through them. They are crazy and super weird. It's great. So Kata leaves the company. Away he goes. But the development team that had been working on this messaging system created for internal communications, they create the messaging platform that we now know as Slack. Okay? Oh, nice. Do you know Slack? I've worked with Slack. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right? They make Slack. Someone asked him why he didn't just stay and work on the Slack team, and he says, quote, there'd be nothing for me to do, right? I'm a game designer. So, <clears throat> here's Kata again in the wind. What's he going to do? Well, first, he decides he's not going to go back to Japan for various reasons. Instead, he and his wife moved to San Francisco in the United States. He talked about how different it was adjusting to the United States, the language difference, the cultural differences. And in 2012 and 2013, <clears throat> and this is something that you'll see Kata do a lot in his downtime, he makes like weird little shit that like is just like very small. He's always doing something. He's never like bored, I guess. I can't speak for him, but it, it always seems like he's making something. Mm -hmm. yep. In 2012 and 2013, Kata made some video game installations for the Baby Castle Summit. To summarize what that is, the summit is just a place to exhibit interesting video games or like weird installations. Mm -hmm. yep. For one installation, he worked with a man named Adam Saltzman, who is an indie developer. A little bit about Saltzman, because we're not going to get too much into him. After he works with Takahashi, he goes on to direct the game studio that made Night in the Woods, Overland, Tunic, Chicory, A Colorful Tale, right? Like, he gets involved in all these things. But now, he's working with Kata. They make this game called Alphabet. It gets some funding through Kickstarter. Alphabet is this weird little game where you guide anthropomorphic, uh, anthropomorphic English language letters with legs. They just have legs. So, like, a running letter B or whatever. Okay? <clears throat> They're going through obstacle courses. You hold down the corresponding character on your keyboard to make that character run forward. When you let go of the letter, the letter will jump. That's the entire game. You're trying to get them through this obstacle course. The trick is, is that you control multiple letters at the same time on your keyboard. So you start off with one letter, and then you start off with three letters and five letters, and then you're literally trying to control every single letter of the English language at the same time to get them through obstacle courses in a time frame. It is frantic. It is goofy. It is overwhelming. It's a short little thing. It had an arcade cabinet. It was great. You can play it online. I will um, put it in the show notes. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Uh, for another installation, he teams up with two groups. Um, the groups are called Venus Patrol and Wild Rumpus. They create something called Tenya Wanya Teens. This is a two-player game that looks like a side-scrolling beat-em-up. You are helping a cartoon boy perform activities by hitting the right button on a large list of buttons at the right time. A parrot will show up and tell you what action you need to do. To play through a full play of the game, it takes five minutes, you need two people, and you are competing in a series of situations. The game starts to speed up and get weird. Let me get you uh, some pictures, because it is funky. So first off, here is the... Um, here is the controller, okay? Uh, it's a little blurry, because these are off of Kata's, um, uh his own like Twitter, but you can see how it has a whole bunch of buttons. And then in this picture, you can see how the buttons light up in different colors. Okay. Um, very much his style, very much right? His style. Like here's very a, much, yeah. look at this picture of gameplay, right? Like this bird's popping up and it's saying, hit the red button to punch. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's like a picture of a so, real bird. And then in the background, everything is drawn in the Kato style. Yeah. <laughs> yep. 
<laughs> okay. So first, the game might say, <clears throat> hit the green button. And you look down, and every button on the controller is green. You can't fail. You hit the button. Then it might say, hit the red button. You look down. Half the buttons are red. Half the buttons are green. And then they're all different. So one button, right? One button, just some ones I pulled from this. One button lets you brush your teeth. One button lets you punch something. One lets you take a shower. One lets you tell someone you love them. One of the buttons, you just start peeing. You just start peeing everywhere. There's a pee button. (laughs) One of the buttons lets you turn into a bear and try to catch a fish in a river. One of the buttons lets you, quote, study porn magazines that you found in the woods. (laughs) So not only do you have to keep track of what color button does what, but then the colors move around. So you have to, you develop this muscle memory. You're like, oh, I'm going to hit the green button. I'm going to hit the green button. Well, now the green button's on the fucking right side of the controller, right? And so suddenly you're doing all these wrong things, right? You need to punch somebody, but you turn into a bear. You want to tell someone you love them, but you start peeing on them, right? You have to be fast and you have to get the input in before your partner does. It is absolute madness. So, but also, again, in this style, a silly, goofy game that tries to challenge a few ideas. Yep. It's so very him. Okay. As we move forward to the modern day, we need to pivot back to Robin Hunnicky. Okay. The same woman who made Journey shows up a bunch. She leaves working on Glitch and she decides she's going to create her own game company. One thing that she had in her corner was that because of, you know, her previous work, she's very well known in the San Francisco indie scene at the time. She creates a company called Phenomena with a man named Martin Middleton. And because the company's in San Francisco, who else is living in San Francisco? Keita Takahashi. She extends an offer. Why not come work for the new company? He he accepts and gets hired in 2013. And if I'm correct, this seems to be like the third time she's opened a door for him, right? Like GDC, the the tiny spec glitch game, and then this. Her company sets this, like they have these broad ideas of growth, okay? Like the company's going to grow, but we also want everybody to grow personally. All employees are going to learn. They're going to work together and whatever these goals are. Okay. So you're going to be helping the company, but you're going to be helping yourself. We will touch on this later. And they have some very lofty goals at the start. They have a number of concepts they want to work on, but they get a lot of fanfare. They got Keita Takahashi, the Keita Takahashi to join their new company. And he's going to start working on something immediately. The game would be called Watam, which is a mashup of the Tamil word Vatam and the Japanese word Wa, both of which can mean circle. Okay. The game was inspired by Keita's experiences living outside of Japan. Working in Vancouver, he had met so many people with so many different backgrounds and life experiences. And all these people come in, they all speak all these different languages, but they found ways to communicate to work toward a common goal. Further, he was feeling kind of bummed out about like the homelessness problem in San Francisco. And he decides he wants to make a game about different kinds of people coming together to solve problems. Quote, human beings are so different and they're living on the same planet. I just wanted to make a video game where so many different people work together to get over the differences, make something new. It's such fun. That's the original idea of what Tom and in another quote, I believe if, if we are all the same, 
if we had the same clothes, same perspective, same skin color, same religion, then that's so weird. That's strange. Even when I see the same type of car as me, I feel strange. So I just believe that while differences make so many problems, it's differences that make our cultures more deep, more nice, and are, make our perspective more wide. I just wanted to make a video game about our differences, but a game that would get over our differences. So there's his lofty goals again, right? Yeah. I'm slightly same old thing. Yep. yep. Same old Kata. I'm slightly jumping ahead in development, but to give you an idea of how this game plays, the game starts. You are a single character. You are a green block with a face, arms and legs, and a hat. He's like this little mayor guy. Okay. And he's crying at the beginning of the game. He's all alone. And so uh, you go through the game doing weird things to please various strange critters and make them happy. And then they kind of like join you. Okay. And then you can play as them. Many of them speak different languages or have strange tones and weird little melodies to their voices. I pulled this from Polygon article because I think it perfectly encapsulates what it is like to play this game. I've played this game. Quote, here is just one random snippet of gameplay. The square mayor teaches a circle who speaks Russian how to use their magic hats to explode and fly around in the sky and now they are friends. This makes a giant bucket show up in the sky, festooned with cloud-shaped text that says, Welcome back, bucket. This isn't even the most unexplainable thing that happens in the game. It's pretty much all like this. <laughs> you can play as over 100 different characters, each with their own weird little abilities. The game is basically a giant puzzle as you try to figure out what different characters want or need. And then you move around in this like sandbox area sort of solving their problems, right? So like there's a phone and it's crying because its friend, the receiver to the phone is gone and you have to go find them and bring them Aww. back together, right? Things like that. But we should talk about development because that's the real story here. Sony gets involved with this deal because why wouldn't they? They always get involved with Kata. And they pitch exclusivity, meaning Sony's going to be the sole publisher. Phenomena takes the deal. Watam is an exclusive to the PlayStation. It is seen in a, as a major coup in the industry at this time. You have the woman who like basically made Journey and you have Keita Takahashi and like this company's working on this game and Sony gets it. Okay. They show the first yeah, little like a winning recipe. Yep. Right. The game was first shown in December 2014 at the PlayStation Experience Showcase and there's excitement, but then things start to get weird at Phenomena. Takahashi and Haneke apparently do not work well together, and they begin to fight over various design and production goals. And these don't turn into small squabbles. Apparently, it got so bad at the offices at one point that the two physically barricaded themselves like something out of a cartoon on different sides of the office so that they did not have to physically see each other. And then oh, if they had no. to talk to each other, they would send notes through other employees. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Haneke was acting as both a producer and a CEO and was struggling to keep the cat motivated. Uh, the cat motivated. <laughs> I looked up his I just lifted my cat and Tyler had to say. Oh, look at it. Kawaii Neko. Look at that cat. Oh, my God. To describe this cat to you, it is the cutest cat. It is big and fluffy and gray and adorable, and it is laying in Dox's arms. I love it. I love the little tufts of hair coming out of her ears. Just the big poofs. She has so much hair. She's very cute. I have met that cat in real life. And she is just as cute yeah. in real life. She is. Okay. 
so Haneke was serving as both a producer and the CEO and was struggling to keep the staff motivated as the game developed. And there were other games in development too, being made by different teams. I read some stuff during this time that workers claimed that they would need to work late for their personal growth. This is how you personally grow is by doing overtime. There are claims that she started being manipulative to them to get them to work longer. It seemed that the workplace started becoming toxic. And I don't have an exact date here, but sometime in 2016, this is a couple years later, Sony decides they're pulling out of the exclusivity deal. Some articles claimed that Sony had cited shifting priorities regarding indie publishing and that they no longer wanted to pursue the game. Keita was never officially told why, but he said he didn't really care what the reason was. Phenomena starts announcing layoffs. Apparently, Haneke disappeared and was unreachable for an entire week. This leaves Watam in limbo. They had been using the Unity engine to create Watam, but Takahashi claimed it was quite old compared with other engines at the time and that everything was starting to look bad. He had felt that the engine couldn't make his core ideas happen, and if they wanted to move forward, they, have to, they would have to recreate the game in something else. They would have to find a new publisher, hire new employees, and do a massive amount of work. But they still believed it was a good game, and the company decides to press forward. As he described it in an interview, quote, I'm happy and unhappy. So Keita, like I said, in his downtime, uh, starts making weird shit again. He created an, uh, an, uh, an augmented reality project for Google in 2016. It was called World with two O's. As he put it, quote, I had time and I needed the money. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was released for their augmented reality platform called Tango. Tango was this Google thing where apparently like software would allow you to create AR experiences and then it would get paired with like certain smartphones and tablets that would like you know, um, handle that stuff. And it, it was like really good at scanning rooms and like letting you do stuff in that space. Um, think of it as a precursor to home VR. Um, so world was this short little thing. You'd use the camera, you'd map out a room using a goofy little box character, and then you could place things in the room. And if you mapped it well enough, like characters would like walk around and interact with things and they'd like walk under your table and shit. And like you could decorate it with little objects and like make the room crazy. So if you put like a little spigot in the room, um, it would fill with water. You could throw a drain on the ground and it would drain the water. Like UFOs would show up and mess with the shit you made. And like, it was fun. Okay. That sounds cool. Okay. Do you remember the earlier story about that company Panic, right? That they worked yeah. at the t-shirts and they later published Untitled Goose Game. Well, Panic Panic had a bit of a history of trying to shake things up in their company. And you, know, you make the same thing forever, it gets boring, right? And I did a little bit of research for this, but I'm going to skim the story here. They decided that they wanted to make some kind of fun little device for their most loyal customers for what would be their 20th anniversary. What came from this was a tiny little console that they called the Playdate. Imagine, Ooh. yeah, imagine a yellow square, not much bigger than a post-it note with a little screen. But the special thing about the console is that it has this little crank that pops out the side and you use it as a mechanism to play games. Okay. Yeah. Um, I was doing research for this episode and I found out about this little console and how Keda got wrapped up in this. And I showed it to my wife and I was like, this is the coolest thing ever, but it's like 
I'm like unemployed right now and there's no way I could buy this dumb little stupid console. And uh, we had agreed um, that we were not going to buy each other stuff for Christmas. And then we both lied and we both bought each other stuff. And she yes, bought me, happens. Yeah. she bought me a play date console and I have one right here. It's a little blurry for docs. There it is. Okay. But see, it's yeah, like, you already showed me pictures of it. So I know it. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. 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 We it, talked about this. It looks already. like a little, little tiny Game Boy. Kind of, yeah. Right. But and then but the, it has a crank on the side. Right? The crank comes out and then you turn it, right? And uh, basically does it it does it have integrated games? So how it works is um I thought this was really fun. They when you buy it, you set up an account and you link it to your um you link it to your Playdate, even if you bought a secondhand one. And then every week you get this little thing that pops up and it says new, uh, it's a little hard to show you, but it says new games available. And when I open it up, I get two new games each week that are wrapped up like little presents and you open them and find out what it is. Cause they liked the idea of, you don't know what you're going to get each week. So like one was like a music maker and one was like a weird thing about birds and like, it's just whatever they could get. So now, I don't know how this deal went down, but given their previous history with Keita Takahashi, they approach him and ask him if they want to make a game. If he, you know, okay, so he comes up with a goofy game called uh, Kranken's Time Travel Adventure. I will show it to you. I played it on stream um, the other day. Uh, here is how this reads. <clears throat> Kranken loves taking naps, but that is always a cause of more trouble. Being late to work or missing flights... And today, he woke up from a nap at the exact time he was supposed to meet a date. Advance or rewind Kranken's timeline. Hurry to the next meeting place where your loved one, Crankette, is waiting and apologize for being late. So, <laughs> literally the entire mechanism is you pop the little crank out of this console. You, when you turn it forward, he moves forward. When you turn it backward, he moves backward. And they just play with that. So, like... Okay, if you get hit by, like, a bug or something, you have to go back to the beginning of the level. But maybe at a certain point, you know, Kranken stops down to, like, smell a flower. Well, if you, like, rewind to when he was smelling the flower, the bug will fly over you. Or, like, there's a level where you walk out of your house and you just get chased by a stampede of pigs and you have to just crank it as fast as you possibly can to get away from them. <laughs> or, like, dumb shit like that, right? Or, like, jump up on a thing and hang and your segmented body will fall apart so birds can fly through it. Like, totally him, totally fucking weird. And uh, it was a lot of fun. Nice. Okay. That's cool. Yeah. <clears throat> Okay, so we'll um, we'll wrap up this stuff on Watam, and then we'll we'll start wrapping up the episode. So in 2017, Annapura Interactive um, agrees to publish the game and provided the team with an infusion of funds and support. They rebuild the game from ground up, from the ground up. They fix the graphical issues and they finish it. But um, they had to recruit new people. They had to update everything. It was a whole thing. Apparently what I read is that um, Haneke decided to like step back working on Watam and just focus on running the company. That seemed to have helped move things along. It released December 19th of 2019 after five years of development. It was on the PlayStation 4. The Epic Game Store had a, like a one-year exclusivity deal. Um, reviews were mixed. The controls were weird. Sometimes it can be a little unintuitive what you need to do, but man, it was fun for what it was. I played it on my stream a few times. It's just insane. Like, like, like if you can just condense the idea of joy into a puzzle it's how it is but mm -hmm. i can only play for like an hour or two because i'd say to them i'd be like there's just so much like constant laughter and like dumb shit that like i feel like my brain's <laughs> melting like i need to like to turn to something more cerebral for a minute like yep 
Okay, <clears throat> so that is um, the create the story of the creation of Katamari and like all the weird shit that Kata has been up to since then. And we'll kind of talk through a little bit of that as we wrap up. So <clears throat> Kata and his wife live in San Francisco with their two children. They are still making games with their company, Uvula. His wife, Asuka Sakai, is still making music, although sometimes that's outside of the gaming industry. Um, sometimes she does music for um, uh, like different animes. I think her most recent credits that I looked up were she did the music for an anime called Stardust Telepath in 2013, and she did some testing on uh, Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. How does one get that role? I would love to know. Um, they announced, uh, in late 2023, they announced a new game. Uvil announced a new game called Taka uh, Takahashi called To a T, which is a game about a boy who is stuck in a T pose. <laughs> <laughs> Quote, To a T is a 3D narrative adventure game developed by Keita Takahashi and the Uvula team with a strong focus on character, interaction, story, and exploration. Play as teenager, parentheses, teen, with a unique posture, just trying uh, to live a normal oh, yeah. life in a small- the pun. Yeah, <laughs> to a T. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Explore the town with the help of teens, loyal dog, and loving mother. Although I, I guess the dog and the mother are probably different characters. Uh, while going to school and contending with bullies, teen discovers a new ability granted to them by their extraordinary posture, and they start to uncover more about their mysterious lineage. Uh, you know, I'm just glad that Kata Takahashi just is still out there doing his weird shit, right? Um, yeah. He still talks about making that playground someday. He mentions it in interviews. I feel like it is the project he never got to do. Um, Yu Miyake, uh, who did all of the music uh, for those games, left Bondi Namco in 2011. He went freelance because he felt that he could no longer grow at the company. He still contributed tracks to other Bondi Namco games, but does other things now, including playing music as a DJ, and he lectures at Tokyo Polytechnic University. Phenomena, the studio that Takahashi worked for, appears to have closed. In March of 2022, a YouTube video released by People Make Games collected various accounts of those working in the indie gaming scene and specifically focused on three studios that had allegations of emotional abuse in the workplace. Robin Haneke was accused of various things, mostly including using the personal information about the lives of her employees to belittle them, spread rumors about them, and manipulate them into working long hours. Now, oh no. I don't... I don't usually like to wade into too much drama like that on the podcast, but right after that, Haneke publicly acknowledged her behavior, apologized for it, but the company announced mass layoffs and then totally shut down. All contractors let go, no severance. They have a working website, but nothing's been released. It seems to be done. Like what Tom came out. Oh boy. Yep. Okay. <clears throat> Wrap up on Katamari. Bandai Namco has released, from my count, 19 different Katamari games. Most of them were mobile games. There's some interesting stuff in there, including a puzzle game, a short-lived Katamari MMO that only existed in the uh, Korean market, but none of these attempts really captured that old magic, right? The most recent games that they released were remakes of both Katamari and We Love Katamari. I played the first one and it was fun. I have the second one and I'm going to play it. But on a bit of a sad note on those... Um, the games were remastered without any input from Takahashi, and from what I can tell, he has said he gets no royalties from Katamari at all. Whoa. None. Quote, that is the nature of the business. I am not important. The game is important. But myself, who cares? 
Oh. Right? He thinks that, uh, he said in interviews that he thinks Namco doesn't understand the spirit of Katamari and that's why he quit. Um, and that he's glad he quit. But I expect that anytime they need to drum up uh, some more money, they'll probably remake another Katamari. <laughs> Um, Katamari was one of the first video games acquired to be part of the permanent collection of the Museum in Modern Art in 2012. It is on display and playable alongside other culturally important games. This includes many we have covered in the podcast, such as Tetris, Flow, Portal, and Space War, which yeah. subsequently are all Docs episodes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just yeah, want to come up with some bases. <laughs> you did, yeah. Uh, I just want to say, how funny is it that Keita Takahashi started out saying, uh, I don't want to make art that will end up in a museum. I want people to experience it. And now his thing that he made is in a museum. Irony. God fucking damn it. <laughs> I didn't want it in a museum. <laughs> uh, here's a quote from Boss Fight Books, uh, the Boss Fight Books thing that I used. Quote, even as video game technology has advanced so much since the game's release, Katamari Damacy stands out today because it offers us a type of play more common to children on a playground, something uniquely internal and almost anarchic. It's like building a tower of blocks just for the sheer joy of pushing it down. It's kind of a good way to put it. Cool. Yeah, it is. I also think it's interesting that you know, like many stories we've told on this podcast, there like so many times that that game came close to never existing at all. Right. And now looking back, it's like this true innovation in the gaming space. Uh, if you want to play it, I recommend the modern remakes. I know Kata doesn't get any money for them, but they, they just run so much better. They're really good. Um, on Nobby Nobby Boy, it only took four days for Girl to reach the moon, but it took until the last week of December 2011 for her to reach uh, Uranus. On December 14th, 2015, Girl finally made it the whole way to Pluto and back to the sun. As the game had been several years old at this point, they had turned on a few modifiers to make the process easier. And when she did reach the sun, all players who participated in the game were sent a letter. I think it was in game. It wasn't a physical one. And it congratulated them for their achievement. Apparently, Kata wrote it on the day of release and doesn't remember doing it at all. He said it was like reading it for the first time. From start oh. to finish, it took players 2,489 days. Good job, players. Good job, players of Nobby Nobby Boy. Uh, World, the AR thing that I mentioned, uh, still appears to be downloadable on PC, but I think to play it, you have to have one of the original phones or tablets. Um, glitch... A bunch of glitches source code was released to the public. There have been some fan reboots to, to reboot the game, like attempt to do that, but I, I haven't seen one stick. Um, they're out there if you want to check them out. Uh, Tenya Wanya Teens is currently playable at the Seattle Museum of Pop Culture in their Indie Game Revolution exhibit. I have narrowly missed going to this a couple of times uh, when I was in Seattle. Um, bummer, I didn't get to do it. Alphabet, the game about running all the little characters. Uh, is downloadable off itch.io. However, they made a free version available on archive.org. I'll put both of them in the links. What Tom is just out there in like every place you could get a game. Uh, Kranken's Time Travel Adventure is only on the Playdate console. Um, it's part of their season of games. I don't know if it'll ever come out other places, but I don't know how it would work without the cranks. So, okay, um, let's just do a very broad wrap up here. Um, in 2019. Telfair Museums did the first museum survey work of Keita Takahashi called Zooming Out. Keita designed all the graphics for the exhibition, vinyl stickers and walls, and helped them to design it. And why I mention this is that I think it's just really cool to see his work recognized like that because 
I personally think that he has had such a profound impact on the game industry and of game design. And like, I think about how all of his work tends to like touch on deeper meanings, right? So like consumerism and the value of stuff and like noticing the world around us and um, what it's like to have strained relationship with your parents and like, things that make people happy and how things that are fun can be simple. They don't have to be complicated, right? Like all these yep. things are like design like elements throughout his games that I think really stuck and really changed. I don't know, kind of how the industry saw games. I don't want to fully give him this huge credit, but it was just so different at the time. He was definitely part of it. Yeah. From, from and, what you've told us. I would also say that, you know, I think it's really interesting to, uh, how he keeps ending up paired with these companies and people that either like take advantage of him or don't fit his vision or the company falls apart. And I was thinking about this when I was working on this episode and I was like, you know, is it just cause he works with like indie groups or startups? Is it cause of clashes over creative style? But I think the big thing is, is I would say the man is very willing to take risks. Sometimes risks do not pick off or uh, they don't, they don't pay off rather. And so, you know, um, I hope that the man has much more success in the future and that all these companies stop crumbling around him. But, um, you know, I just think like we should give him some credit for what, what he did. What's your takeaway here, docs? Yeah. I, th I think the most important takeaway for me is that, uh, a lot of success in art seems to come down to, of course, luck, but also persistence because, he he was in because there's many talented artists around the world but he was in luck to early in his life encounter that one spot where a door opened to him like a very promising door because if if we if we basically look on the continuation of of his life there was other doors that opened for him that he took that probably wouldn't have multiplied his renown as much as that first door that we heard about it that door that gave him the um position at namco and could and gave him the chance to make katamari so mm -hmm. it's basically his persistence that that helped him come to the spot that he was at and then to create something so absolutely unique as katamari yeah i find truly amazing so i think that's my takeaway if you want to make it in the art world you have to be committed and mm -hmm. very persistent in what you want to do and maybe it's fine to not compromise compromise but sometimes you probably have to it's really difficult there's yeah. no perfect recipe yeah i think you can say that that is i don't know broadly just life right you have to persist sometimes you have to compromise sometimes you don't always get what you want um yeah i think what i really thought interesting about his story is just how many times that like I don't know. Just things just didn't work out for him and he kept on going, like you said. So, Yeah, just All get right. up and keep doing it. Yeah. So I want to finish with a quote and then a question. Okay? Here's a quote. I know our lives are not so fun. They are boring. We do the same things over and over. But we should be celebrating the good things in life. Then we can become better people. So here's my question. Docs, I'm going to ask you. This is, somebody asked... Keita Takahashi this at a, at a panel one time. What do you think is the best thing 
in the world. I'll go with mine first, just to give you time. I wrote down laughter. I think laughter is the best thing in the world. Uh, I think that like when I think of things that in, in my life made me the happiest, it was when I was laughing with people. Like we still think back, you know, my wife and I still joke about times we laughed really hard until we couldn't breathe. That for me, laughter. What about you? I don't think I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to stick with yours. Yours is too good. Laughter. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Just Here's the a- joy of it and the how it overtakes you and how you forget yourself in the moment. Yeah. It's, I think it's the greatest thing in the world. Yeah. You're right. Here's how he answered this. <clears throat> it's all so serious, he says before tapping his foot, trying to come up with the best thing about Earth. Cat. He says after a surprisingly long pause, Mm. cat is the best thing. (laughs) (laughs) That is also true. And with that, thank you to our listeners. Thank you to our ever-talented editor, Andre. And thank you to you, Docs, for this very long episode. Um, To all of you who have asked me to do a Keita Takahashi episode, here it is. (laughs) It is done. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. This was really nice. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I had a blast making this. And I hope all of you have a good day. And um, send us suggestions for other episodes that we could do. Uh, Otherwise, we will just do whatever the fuck we want. Yeah. And we will see you for the next episode. (laughs) Catch you later, friends. See ya. Bye. pronounce this i cannot forget that moment when everyone started laughing everyone started laughing started laughing 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 sorry andre sorry andre sorry andre all right so um so first, let's do uh, we'll do a countdown and three claps, and then a countdown and the Super Mario Brothers theme. How's that sound? Okay. Okay. And we're doing so we're going to do like clap, clap, clap. Yeah. One, two, three. Clap, clap, clap. Okay. So you count me down. Okay. One, two, three. One, two, three. One. Oh shit! I'm supposed to do it at the same time. Why do we fuck this up? Okay. So, all right. Okay. So, one, one two, two, three. three. One, two, three. One, two, three. <laughs> Why do we suck at this very so much? <laughs> oh fuck. Okay, let's do the Super Mario All thing. Right. Just just he's gonna he's gonna figure okay. it out. He's gonna be so I'm gonna to I'm gonna say <laughs> dun 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 and then we're gonna both do Okay. Okay, sounds good. Okay, I'm I'm gonna say one, two, three first. One, two, three, dun 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 okay. and then clap. Okay. <laughs> one, okay, okay, okay. Two, three, dun 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 dun.
Well, I'm sure we just fucked that up, but that's okay. It is time to record now. Da, 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 da. All right. Okay, cool. Here we go.